Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntra is here. Today we uh, talk to Robert Meyer Burnett, the director of 1999's Free Enterprise, one of the funniest uh, homages to Star Trek ever made, with uh, Eric McCormick from uh, Will and Grace and William Shatner and uh, Rafer Weigel. And I know you've never heard of Rafer Weigel, but if you heard our last conversation with uh, Rob, or two conversations ago, uh, we give you the full lowdown and the backstory on Free Enterprise. Uh, Rob is back because certainly uh, Star Trek Discovery is in the news. Uh, production has begun. And uh, Star Trek Axanar has reached a settlement with uh, CBS, the uh, copyright owners of Star Trek. And uh, Axanar will be able to proceed, but under the Star Trek fan film rules that were imposed last summer. So we get some observations from Rob. Rob was the editor on Prelude to Axanar, has been working on the Axanar project, and... Uh, uh, also uh, d- directed the uh, Vulcan sequence uh, that uh, featured Gary Graham from Enterprise. Uh, that was another continuation of the Axanar project. All that stuff is on YouTube, Prelude to Axanar and Rob's Vulcan scene. Uh, but uh, production can uh, move forward after a few things are checked off on Axanar. In fact, I direct you to the latest Star Trek Axanar podcast where Rob and Alec Peters uh, go over the full details on uh, what's uh, the next steps as far as the, the Axanar project. But uh, we also uh, want to talk about uh, uh, Rob's edited project that uh, is a uh, time travel movie starring Zoe Bell. It's called Paradox, and it's currently on Netflix. We talk a little bit about that. You know, I love talking to Rob. It's the third time that Rob's been on the show, and one of the reasons why is, like some of uh, our favorite Word Balloon guests, uh, he is a wide expert on a lot of geek culture stuff, I get into some really fun conversations about old movies, old television, even old-time radio, and uh, Rob is right there. Great observations and great insight on a lot of things. Uh, you know, Also, uh, Rob is well-known as a special features director on uh, things like the X-Men movies, on Superman Returns, the Lord of the Rings films, also Star Trek The Next Generation, the second season, Blu-rays. He's uh, produced a lot of interesting content. And I'm always interested in what he thinks, because he's one of us. So it's a pleasure to have him back today on Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. And I'll tell you what, let's look at uh, some of the Star Trek-related product that's available at InStock Trades. Things like the Star Trek classic movie Omnibus. Marv Wolfman, Peter David, Andy Schmidt, Dave Cockrum, Klaus Jansen, Tom Sutton, Gordon Purcell, of course. 30% off, $17.49. Uh, Let's see, what else? We've got uh, Star Trek Alien Spotlight uh, featuring uh, all the various... uh, Is this... uh, This collection includes stories of the Gorn, the Vulcans, Andorians, Orions, Borg, and the Romulans. And uh, written by such uh, stalwarts as uh, John Byrne and Paul Story and David Tipton and uh, artists like uh, John Byrne and Dave Messina and Sean Murphy and Len O'Grady. It is 30% off, $13.00. And 99 cents. You can get the Star Trek Next Generation Space Between uh, trade paperback from Dave Tishman and Casey Maloney. Great story. It is uh, 30% off, $13.99. The Star Trek Ongoing series from IDW, you can get several of uh, those arcs, including Volume 7, uh, featuring uh, the writing of Mike Johnson, former Word Balloon guest, and Efren Fajar, uh, 30% off, $12.59. You can get uh, Star Trek Con Ruling in Hell trade paperback from uh, Scott and David Tipton and Fabio Mantovani. 
It is 30% off and $12.59. Star Trek Archives, Volume 3, The Gary Seven Collection from Howard Weinstein and Michael Jan Friedman. 30% off, again, $13.99. A hell of a lot more from InStockTrades.com when it comes to Star Trek stuff. Check it out for yourself if your orders are $30. Uh, if your orders are $50 or more, you receive free shipping at InStockTrades.com. Word Balloon is also brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much, League, for your support. Uh, you've responded, and I appreciate that. If uh, you didn't know, I uh, lost my day job in radio in December and uh, doing what I can to uh, you know keep, uh, keep things going. And uh, if you ever thought about subscribing to Word Balloon, I certainly could use your help. Uh, could I uh, ask for $5 a month? Is that too much to ask? about the price of a comic book when you consider the content you get here at Word Balloon every month. I think you get really interesting interviews from very interesting people, and uh, hopefully it's uh, entertaining. And I think it is because uh, I can tell the downloads are up, and I thank you for that. I thank you for that kind of response to uh, the call for help. And uh, there are lots of new uh, League of Word Balloon listeners, and lots of existing uh, we League of Word Balloon listeners have uh, upped their subscription rate from $1 to $5. Everybody, thank you very much. It really does mean a lot. So if you've ever thought about it before, uh, go to uh, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash Word Balloon, and that's the direct page. And uh, if you can uh, subscribe, I would really appreciate the help. So thank you very much, League of Word Balloon listeners. All right, without further ado, I want to uh, welcome back Rob Meyer Burnett. It is great to talk to him, and uh, we always have uh, interesting conversations, and I always appreciate his point of view. So uh, let's have a lot of fun talking about Star Trek and beyond with Rob Meyer Burnett, now on Word Balloon. Robert Meyer Burnett, it's wonderful to have you back to Word Balloon, and, uh, and thank you for uh, always coming back and uh, giving me more uh, fun conversation. Well, thank you very much. You know, I really think that uh, you have one of the best uh, podcasts out there, so it's always it's always a, uh, a pleasure to come back. You're, you're incredibly kind, and uh, congratulations starting off because uh, headlines were made at the end of the week. Uh, it looks like uh, things have progressed to a point, and you'll uh, give me more uh, definitive information, but... Uh, Axinar and uh, and the Star Trek people have reached some level of uh, understanding, so Axinar can move forward. Well, it can move forward in a fashion. Yeah. Um, since uh, the the as many people know, I was involved with a, a fan film that started out as a short prelude to Axinar that was a proof of concept for a feature film that we wanted to make a a Star Trek fan film we were calling it an independent film just because that's kind of what it was and based on what Paramount had seen because of the amount of money we raised uh, via crowdfunding Paramount and CBS the rights holders of Star Trek sued us sued well sued Alec Peters and Axanar Productions Alec Peters being the principal architect of all of this. Mm-hmm. So we uh, spent all of 2016 um, with a threat of a lawsuit and the legal uh, machinations ground ever forward. I had to be deposed, which was a very interesting situation. I think as I asked the court reporter at the end, I said, was that the geekiest <laughs> deposition you've ever taken? And she goes, oh, absolutely. <laughs> that was the geekiest deposition ever. And uh, it, it was really kind of this whole thing was really surreal. 
And uh, at the end of the day, I was always involved with this project because I wanted to make a feature Star Trek film that I would never get to make otherwise. So that was my reason for being involved with the project in the first place. And unfortunately, uh, we're now no longer going to make a feature film. We're allowed to make two 15-minute episodes, so a total of 30 minutes of content uh, where we were making somewhere between 90 to 120 minutes of content before. So we can't make a feature film, which is unfortunate, um, but we can make two 15-minute episodes or one long 30-minute episode, I guess. Yeah. So that's where we're at now. And I have to say that based on your proof of concept, Prelude to Axinar, which is just over 20 minutes or so, and I'm sure you know the exact running time. Uh, yeah, it's about 21 minutes. There you go. Uh, well, that's the thing, man. So 15 minutes, you can do something pretty significant, and especially two parts. So, yeah, I, I believe me, I'm I'm as bummed as a fan because I was really looking forward to this. The uh, amount of special effects that you guys were able to assemble are, are amazing, and I love showing my other friends that are Star Trek fans this on YouTube and watching their minds blown the way mine was the first time I saw it. In addition to uh, great acting that you got from uh, from very established actors, that's also part of the good news of the settlement. Because I do know right. that uh, you know, and, and I'm sure I explained this in in uh, the introduction to our segment. But you know, uh, Star Trek set up these fan film rules. One of them was, which also would have excluded yourself, is anyone who's ever worked on Star Trek in any capacity, it seemed, was not allowed to make future fan films. And that, yes, and, they... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's please. true. So, and, and so not only... You guys had, you know, um, Gary Graham, and uh, and I'm, uh, I'm forgetting uh, some of the names, but of course... Richard Hatch Richard, from yes. Battlestar Galactica. We had J.G. Hertzler, who played uh, Martok on Deep Space Nine. Tony Todd. We, Tony Todd, everyone knows him as Candyman, or as Kern Worf's brother or the elder Jake Sisko from the Deep Space Nine episode, The Visitor. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, we, you know, we had great talent. I mean, what, what's really interesting is the idea of what a fan film actually is has come under fire. And I think one of the biggest problems was people were wondering, well, what is this? I mean, if you're not if you don't if you don't follow fan films, I think people wonder, why would you do this? You know, what would be the point of making a movie like this? Good question. Go on. And, <laughs> you know, I think that, that that's why I keep asking – people keep asking me. And I say, well, sure. you know, look, I build – right now I'm sitting at a table full of model rockets that are all in various stages of construction. For whatever reason, I, I was bitten by the rocketry bug again about – eight or nine years ago, and I bought all these rockets, and I never made them. Oh, that's interesting and, that it's recent. I would have taken you for, like, you know, old school, let's go to the model shop. Oh, I was one, you know, elementary school or whatever, but then I found out that this company, actually a lot of companies, rocketry, like many hobbies, because kids today don't build models, and many don't build rockets, um, it's all done by adults, and everything has gotten bigger. Sure. And much more powerful. <laughs> and where once you'd have rockets that go 500 feet or 1,000 feet, now they go 5,000 feet. <laughs> I have a rocket, uh, a Saturn V, a five-foot Saturn V that goes 10,000 feet in the air, and you need an FAA waiver to fly it. <laughs> so I can't even fly it in L.A. But it's fun to build. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's in a way, it's especially with the political 
situation uh, being so crazy lately that it, it's sort of therapeutic to actually sit down with Elmer's wood glue and and uh, super glue and sandpaper and spray paint and just to sit down and, and sort of make something, sort of having an arts and crafts project. Uh, and also I was doing it before the settlement. I thought we were going to go to trial, so maybe all of that had something to do with – they call us B-A-R, yeah, B-A-R, Born Again Rocketeers. Interesting. And, um, you know, it's it's fun. I remember when I was a kid – well, not really a kid, but when I was working at Warner Brothers, I worked at Feature Production, Feature Production at Warner Brothers, uh, and I worked for the senior vice president of production, Bill Young. And he and a lot of the other studio executives back in the late 80s, early 90s got into radio-controlled airplanes Cool, in a, in a big way. <laughs> and that was sort of – I thought that was kind of interesting. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Hey, man, you know, come on. Good those for are, you guys. Yeah, but those are like sophisticated gizmos that do take talent to make and fly. So, yeah, it's not – you know <laughs> – Hey, I'm I mean, now you got you know you can buy drones yes. and you can peek into your neighbor's window with them <laughs> and shoot them in 4K and in various you know it's true. compromising positions. The world has changed. But at the, as a filmmaker, that's got to be kind of interesting. I don't know how much you've tooled around with that from a filmmaking standpoint. Oh, actually, yeah. You know, it's funny. I was um, every movie now has a drone, and there was a film I edited. It's on Netflix, kind of a, a low budget sci-fi thriller called paradox if you want to watch it um it stars zoe bell from quentin tarantino's death proof sure um time travel stunt double for uh right from kill bill absolutely and we were shooting in a uh, building in downtown los angeles and to get some establishing shots we had this great we had this great drone and it was kind of terrifying because from the roof of the building we were shooting in, we actually flew the drone over the 10 freeway, which is an eight-lane freeway in packed traffic. Oh, yeah. You know, and we're just, we're just buzzing the traffic. As we go over the traffic, we're heading right into downtown L.A., and I'm like, thank God this drone isn't weaponized because, <laughs> wow, what kind of damage could we cause? Oh my God. So I think that we're we're. Oh, by the way, the establishing shots turned out great, and you can see them in the movie. <laughs> That's on Paradox on Netflix. Very cool. I think we Paradox on Netflix. I think we might have mentioned Paradox the last time we talked, but that's excellent. Another yeah, reason to go check it out. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, it's it's fun, you know. So so, but yeah, everyone's using drones. Hilarious. So I kind of got off. Topic. No, but it was no, but that was a great tangent. But we can get back to so so because you said with rockets, one of the reasons why you make fan films and you made the allegory with your your rocket work and everything but back to fantasy. well you know it's it's like i build i build stars like also on this table is a is a i hate to admit this but i have a plastic model kit of the jj prize from the jj abrams star trek films from actually from into darkness before the refit and uh you can't buy one in the united states yet because they never released one in the u.s they only released it in germany so i had from <laughs> amazon excellent. i had to get it from a third-party seller from Amazon because Amazon UK wouldn't sell it to me because it's not licensed to be sold in in the United wow. States, which is so weird. Like here, I'm in a lawsuit with with Paramount and CBS, and I can't even buy a licensed model kit of the Enterprise <laughs> because it's never come out in the United States, <laughs> which is so like you got. Come on, guys, really? But anyway, that's sitting here too. So I'll spend hours and weeks and months building a model, making a perfect replica of of the Starship Enterprise. And people will go, well, why, dude? Like, what for? And I'm like, because it's cool. Sure. I put it on my desk, and it's 
it's cool. I, I have a I have a, a light kit for it and sound effects and why not? <laughs> Can't that isn't that cool? And and cool. the funny thing about it is my whole life I grew up my whole life loving Star Trek. So when I was a kid, there was a lot of unlicensed Star Trek material. When the Franz Joseph Technical Manual and the Franz Joseph Enterprise Blueprints came out in 1975, following that, the fan community used those as a template, and they put out fan-made blueprints of Klingon ships. You could get blueprints of the of the grain ships in the animated episode uh, "More Tribbles, More Troubles." I mean, you could get you could get a Gorn a, a Gorn blueprints. You never even saw the Gorn ships; so it was all made up. But these were things that you'd buy at conventions and you'd buy patches and yep. and things that were unlicensed because nobody understood. Like if you were to have gone to Paramount at the time with the rights holders and said, I would like to license um, – we want to make Star Trek embroidered patches. They would have been like, what? Why? <laughs> you know, there was, there was no – until Star Wars really, there was no understanding of why anybody would want to buy uh, – swag from your favorite movie yeah yeah you know it was just it didn't it didn't that's why when lucas asked fox he said you know i'd like to retain <laughs> the merchandising rights to star wars fox is like yeah whatever dude exactly you know, okay yeah good luck he's with like star- yeah i want to make like posters and stuff yeah. and that was of course probably the biggest mistake in all of hollywood history well they thought they were only getting another silent running or you know one of those other kind of one-shot sci-fi movies from the 70s like yeah whatever you know we're- i know i mean <laughs> you know you. last night I went to a, a theater to see uh, La La Land again, and there's this gigantic these these we have theaters out here called the ArcLight. Mm-hmm. I think there's actually yeah, one in Chicago. Arclight. Yeah, we have ArcLight. Yeah, the, there's one. I love the uh, the ArcLight started in Hollywood. They're great theaters, but they have like these big sort of um, they're like tapestries, like multiple posters, all put up on one wall together to form a big a bigger image. Okay, and the the image at this ArcLight, the ArcLight Pas- Pasadena. Was of stormtroopers in the in the water in the tropical water from Rogue One, and it's this giant floor to ceiling um, like mosaic, and I just was sitting there thinking to myself, "Wow, these stormtroopers are the same tro- stormtroopers I watched forty years ago <laughs> when I was ten years old." This is the fortieth anniversary of Star Wars, and I'm looking at them now, brand new. They're the exact same look. They're the same stormtroopers. These were not like like beach troopers or death troopers, the new troopers that we got. These are the classic stormtroopers. They're there as if they were brand new. And I thought to myself, you know, it's amazing that this stuff, the world just, everybody became a geek. The entire planet became, and, and who would have thought that star Wars, we would have, our eighth star Wars feature film came out 40 years after the original. I mean, it's just, yeah. It's unbelievable. No, it is. It's it's great to have it back. I was very pleased with Rogue One and you know that you know it's a good movie and you know you enjoyed it when, you know, days later you're just like, Damn, that was so good. I gotta see it again. And you know, right. within two weeks I saw it again. So yeah, you know, it's, I'm like, Yeah, it was a good movie. Just reconfirming and also being shocked and stuff just whizzes by the second time, of course, and I'm sure you were the same way. Okay, now you really sit down and study the movie and okay, how well did they do it? How well did uh they uh, get um, oh god, and now I'm blanking. Um, Christopher Lee and Peter uh, Peter Cushing. I'm mean, how good. Oh, Peter Cushing. Oh know, yeah, Peter Cushing. Uh, that was you know. No, that was that was amazing, and you know yeah. it wasn't just a cameo. Like he 
he had a role. Yes, and <laughs> you know he was he was an antagonist. And no I'm question. Like, wow, that's uh, no. What that's uh, what an, amazing. Yeah. What an, exactly? What an amazing uh, effect to achieve. And yeah, I, I really exceeded my expectations in terms of what they were able to do. And we've come a long way from uh, the Donner cut of, or well, I guess it was in Superman Returns where they kind of stitched together some old Brando footage. Right. Yeah, we they did actually, and it, it was amazing. They used Brando outtakes, and um, <laughs> they did the same thing for the Donner cut of uh, Superman Two as well. There you go. Well, and as I, as I'm sure again, as I said in the preamble you know you're you're a big special features guy and were was on superman returns and also as i say with the with the star trek fan films because you did the special features for the next generation seasons that it made you technically ineligible as far as the current fan film rules and i'm glad they were able to get by that with the negotiation so that you'll be able to move forward is that yeah i mean luckily they they you know i don't know what's going to ultimately happen. I really don't like right now I'm editing another low budget indie feature. That's actually, it's pretty wacky, but I actually really like it. Cool. Um, it's a movie called Tango Shalom and it is a, I call it a, an, a Jewish indie spiritual quest dance comedy. <laughs> and, uh, it, it, it's literally about uh, an Orthodox rabbi, a Hasidic Orthodox rabbi, who believes he's heard the word of God, and God has told him, for some unbeknownst reason, to learn to dance the tango. But he's a you know he's a married man and a father of five, and because of his religious beliefs, he can't touch another woman. Okay. So <laughs> it becomes a sort of a a Sancho Panza, you know, tilting at windmills kind of a, a quest. And he has to go and consult other spiritual leaders and talk to people in his community and ask if he can really do this and hijinks ensue. <laughs> and it's, um, it's a lot of fun. You know, it was shot in and around New York and people like Lainey Kazan, who was in my big fat Greek wedding is in her. it. She's great. Yeah. And she's great. And Joseph Bologna, who was actually in my favorite year, which was one of the inspirations of, for free enterprise. Uh, he is in it. Yes. Yeah, he's one of the co-writers of the script. And, you know, him and his wife were – they were Academy Award nominees back in the 70s, and they were big Broadway stars in the 60s and 70s. Renee, so it's a real honor. Renee Taylor. And his, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And um, they're great, and they have, like, crazy stories, and they know everybody, and they're friends with Shatner. And so they wrote the film, and, and uh, Joseph's son Gabe is the director, and he and I have spent many, many, many – months now not many months but six months and many many hours cutting the film and it's it's been great you know and it's it's nice to have had something to work on through this whole thing because i think you know there was really the best intentions with prelude to axanar and i know that's where the road to hell is paved but <laughs> it's true that we started out we made um it was really a bunch of friends getting together to make prelude to axanar the short which you can still see on youtube paramount didn't take it down cbs said we could keep it up and it was truly a, a, a labor of love by everybody involved and it was just a really cool different approach to the star trek universe which was we were dealing with a time 21 years before kirk and spock 21 years before kirk took command of the enterprise in 2265 and we postulated that there was a war the four years war between the federation and the klingons and prelude to Axanar is of course in documentary format and it's it's a 
documentary that looks back 10 years later on the actual four years war. And it's, we did it like the old Franz Joseph technical manual or blueprints to make it seem like it came actually from the Star Trek universe. So we didn't call it Star Trek. It's called the four years war episode three prelude to Axanar. You know, it's like you'd watch a history channel documentary, the Federation historical society documentary about this particular war and the, the, the various people who participated uh, were interviewed, and that's what the short film was. It yep. was sort of a proof of concept for the feature that we were going to make. And unfortunately, we 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 ended up raising almost one and a half million dollars uh, based on that short. Yeah, and that's a lot of money. Yeah. That's a lot of money for anybody <laughs> now. I mean, I I I'm trying to raise a million bucks to make a science fiction film right now. It's impossible. Make raising money is impossible. But our short film had such 14,000 people ended up donating money to us. Wow. And That's great. it was Jesus. Oh, it was crazy. And yeah. I wasn't even the original. I was only the editor of Prelude to Axe Star, my good buddy Christian Gossett, um, who actually I don't know if he's my good buddy anymore now, but oh, I'm he was. sorry to hear that. I enjoyed and, his comic well, book you know, work I, in the it's, day. It's, it's it's part of the fallout of this this whole thing, which is really Christian's a great guy and he he's a very talented comic book artist and he's a great designer and he did a great job directing prelude and then i edited it for him mm-hmm. um and he was going to originally direct the axnar feature and for various reasons i mean he left and he he's he's retconning lately on various podcasts and things what actually happened oh that's disappointing which All right. it, it, it well it is it's just that what's really interesting is alec peters the mastermind behind all of this generates a lot of well i'll just say it hatred from a lot of people like i think an irrational hatred i mean if you go on to facebook there is a paramount or a cbs paramount versus axanar page that literally every single day since the lawsuit hit this group of people you know there's 1200 members but it's the same 50 people who, who they post every single day i hear you man they're their hatred about Alec. And, you know, sometimes I fall in there and they hate me too. But but what's really odd about it is I don't understand why anybody, if you don't like something or you don't like somebody, why do you spend literally 365 days uh, pillaring them? Don't you have better things to do? Well. I mean, <laughs> don't you have other things to go make? I'm sure. I'm sure Dan Slott would commiserate with you. I'm sure Bendis would cons- commiserate with you. You know, I mean, that's the geek mm. culture, man. There's just these tribes of haters that you know are are infatigable with it as far as their amount of hate and the amount of time they're willing to spend telling you how much. Well, you know, it, what, what's really what what's really interesting is is I hate the J.J. Abrams produced Star Trek movies. I hate them to the core of my existence. However, I I can recognize that they're beautifully made pieces of work. Absolutely. My my hatred for them comes from my – it comes from a place of, to me, they're not real. They didn't didn't nail the Star Trek universe. I can't believe that they're real, whereas other Star Trek I can believe. Now, the, the cast is great. The direction is great. The visual effects are great. Michael Giacchino's music is great. What I don't like is the story itself. Sure. That that there's not enough the, – the reality of the Star Trek universe that I have, have lived with for 
the better part of my life, almost coming up on a half a century, uh, is not contained in those movies. But I can still, as much as I hate them, which I laugh about pretty much, people laugh at how much I hate them, but it's kind of become a joke, but, but I can still look at them and recognize that there was first-class, A-list Hollywood filmmaking in those movies. Sure, agreed. And, and uh, you know, I've loved a lot of Brian Bendis's work over the years. Some of it I don't love. Sure. But, but I mean, Brian Bendis over the last 20 years has been a force to be reckoned with. There would not be a Jessica Jones show on Netflix if it were not for Bendis's alias. There you go. I mean, there just wouldn't. No, you're right. And, you know, you can't – you might not like everything a creator does, but it's really hard to create. It's really hard to make something. And what's unfortunate is after Christian left the Axonar film, I took over as director. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of incredible work done. Like I have 85 visual effects shots that I directed and Tobias Richter, our special effects supervisor, created. Like I, I spent months with him and I would write – I would sit in my office. I would play with – spaceship models and and literally take pictures of angles and things and i would send these to him and then i'd write these very detailed shot descriptions of what i wanted to see in the visual effects shot Mm -hmm. and i would send these descriptions to tobias with the understanding that look these are just suggestions this is kind of what i want to see the overall shot to feel like but i left it up to tobias to because he's such a brilliant effects artist to sprinkle his pixie dust and bring bring the noise as it were and and make the shots amazing i'm with you and and we had a terrific back and forth for months now and this is something that a lot of people don't understand they think oh axonar was a scam and nobody was working on anything but but we were i worked every single day for months with tobias coming up with these shots and he would give me animatics and i would look at them and i would give him back notes and he would change the animatics and he would come up with new shots i mean it was exactly what a director is supposed to do on a, on a feature film. And all of that was going on. The sets were being built. Costumes were being designed. All, everything that happens in a, in a Hollywood production was happening with Axanar. And we were a month away from principal photography. And what's really funny is a lot of the anti-Axanar people are like, oh, you guys weren't a month away. And I'm like, but you're living in, like, Arkansas. Have you ever worked on a, on a production? Like, I've been working on film productions literally since 1989. I mean, I know of what I speak. And it's it's really funny because there's a lot of people that would, would go, oh, you know, Rob Burnett, he peaked with Free Enterprise. You know, that was 18 years ago. And I'm like, <laughs> as, if, as if, like, what? I mean, my DVD work that took me all over the world, like, I got to live in Australia for a year. I got to live in New Zealand for a number of years on – from Lord of the Rings to Chronicles of Narnia. Yep. You know, I had a great time producing DVD special editions and all the special features I did. I I traveled all over the world. I interviewed Christopher Lee for five hours in London. Wow. You know, I was a guest in Tel Aviv at a, at a big sci-fi convention there called Icon. I went to film festivals all over the world. I mean, it's like, okay, do I have Steven Spielberg's career? Certainly not. But, man, I have had a good time. And, you know... I'm still editing movies. I have a movie on, on like I said, Netflix. And, and these people are like, what I find interesting is the idea that you're going to go after somebody 
who's creating something, who's making something. It's so hard to make anything yes. these days, especially, yes. you know, especially movies. And it's so easy. Like now, we we take everything for granted because there's so much great stuff everywhere. It might be on Netflix. It might be in the theater. It might be on Blu-ray. Whatever it is, there's so much of it. And it's like oh, I don't like this. In five in five minutes, you're like I don't like this. I'll turn it off. And watch something else. So all content has become disposable to everyone. True. Well, somebody spent two years of their life working on a movie. <laughs> Absolutely, man. You know, and it's it, it's like they don't know. Even Free Enterprise, Shatner turned us down four times. And there were times when I sat there going, oh, I'm never going to get to make Free Enterprise. I mean, you stick with it. And it's it's like I've, I've produced a horror film in Bulgaria since then. And, you know, I worked... I was a producer on the – I bought the original script that Agent Cody Banks was based on. And it, it's just a funny thing because I think a career – like I'm having a great time. Hey, man. But, I but understand. I've never, yeah, go on. Yeah. Well, I've been on the wrong – I've never been on the wrong side of fandom until this year, until the Axonar case. And it's been really interesting to see uh, what it's like. I mean I thought when I was writing for Sci-Fi Universe and – in the nineties that we were the coolest geeks in the world and all that. And, <laughs> and everyone loved us, you know, and, and now to, to be on the receiving end, because now everyone's a geek. And before it used to be the sort of purview of just a few of us, but now the whole world went out and got itself. It's, it's geek on. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, big bang theory is the biggest television show on TV, you know, on broad network. Television. Right. Right. And, and it's like, uh, who would have thought? I, the Free Enterprise, the TV series, was the biggest <laughs> show on TV. <laughs> Pretty much. Oh, exactly. did I say that? <laughs> I, you know, no one ever well, called that, me up to direct an episode of that show. But uh, whatever. I mean, it's no, it's funny, and it, it's 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 just a strange thing to have seen what turned out what originally started as a really fun thing. And um, Prelude to Axonar won forty seven film festival awards, and and everyone liked it. And it was a fun thing to be involved in, and then to watch it turn into something that was the antithesis of what it was when it started. To to see it become this, this like I don't know, this crucible and fandom. It's so weird. Isn't that why, though, Rob? Honestly, because and I believe me, you're right. I have gotten very mild because other other than well, why do you have that guy on? I'm like because I like his work. He's I think his stuff is great, and also I hear your podcasts. And I know, and I've seen you at conventions. Uh, I know you're one of us, and I know, and I enjoy, I think you're incredibly entertaining. Whether you're talking about uh, the media that you've just talked about in the last few minutes to uh, your actual body of work, and um, yeah, I mean, I just see, I, I get that there's the, fan, the the Facebook page, and there is the group of haters and stuff that are specifically so targeted at Axenar. But is it like, I mean, I did remember seeing a few website articles you know from from some of the usual sci-fi places that might uh be a little negative towards axonar but i don't know i mean i'm not in the i'm not on the target so is it is it really like thousands and thousands of haters or just this concentrated few that no, have, i think know? i think there's probably here here's here's where we went we went awry <laughs> i think is there was the amount of money we raised Right. We we did. I think we did two things wrong. We thought, I thought, that with all of the money we had raised, that we had an obligation to the people that donated money to us, which means I felt we should keep them informed. We should put out videos. Right. We should put out podcasts. We should have pictures of everything that we were doing because they paid for it, and why shouldn't they 
participate in the process, albeit, you know, vicariously. And um, that was a mistake. I, I think what we should have done was just made the movie, buckled down, hunkered down, and made the movie and put it out. Prelude to Axnar, we raised the money in April. The movie was shot in early May. The live action was shot in early May. And we debuted the finished film at Comic-Con in 2014 in July. So the entire time from the beginning of the crowdfunding campaign was, um, let's see, April, May, June, July. It was three and a half months. Okay. In and out. And what was amazing about Prelude Axanar is even though I worked on it as the editor and I was given a lot of leeway, a lot more creative freedom and input than editors normally get, um, what was amazing to me was even though I cut the whole thing and did all the work on my laptop, and when it was finally finished and we showed it for the very first time publicly, we were in a movie theater, this giant movie theater in San Diego in Horton Plaza. And and it was you know 5.1 surround sound. I mean it, it was made like a feature film was Absolutely. made. Absolutely. And, and watching it in a movie theater on this gigantic screen with this thunderous soundtrack, I was like, wow. Yeah. This is really cool. And it was, it was the first – it was like seeing it for the first time even though I looked at it every day for two and a half months. <laughs> and I, I, I finished it at 6 o'clock in the morning the day of its, its premiere because we were color timing it and wow. getting it, tweaking it. Oh, yeah. And very, then I, very, I Robert Wise, very Robert Wise uh, with uh, the first Star Trek uh, film. Oh, yeah. No, it was, it was, <laughs> it was crazy. And it was – because we just kept working on it and trying to make it as good as it could be. Sure. And, and seeing it in the movie theater, you know, I was sitting there, and, and what was really funny was my boss uh, from CBS on the on the uh, Blu-rays was in the audience. Okay, he came, and he thought it was really cool. Awesome, <laughs> you know, and I and um, irony, but go on, yeah. But it was it was a lot of fun. So it was interesting to watch because of our um, interactions with people. We painted our gigantic targets on ourselves. And it was funny because there's a lot of people that said – like one of the things we had to do is we acquired a warehouse where we built – we turned it into a soundstage. Yes. And we did all the work there. And and a lot of people said, oh, you're you're starting a for-profit studio. And I'm like, I, I don't even know – like when people would say that, I, I always wanted to ask them, well, what do you mean? What do you think a for-profit studio is? Like we're renting a warehouse I mean, we still have to find people to give us money to make something in our warehouse. I mean, it's, it's funny because people seem to think that, oh, you've got this building and you can rent it out and you can do all this stuff and turn it into an income stream. I mean, well, I guess you could. I, I suppose you could. But we didn't want to be landlords that rented out a building. You know, we wanted to make stuff. And and Axonar, the, the donations we're going to pay for the warehouse for a year while we made Axonar and then it was done. Then we had to continue funding the warehouse ourselves with whatever else. We, I mean, and it was, it was just a weird, like that's one of the things that has followed us around. Sure. And well, I can um, see that. I can, I can see that. And I have read that kind of complaint, I suppose, you know, and it's like, it's like all the other fan films like Star Trek continues and Star Trek new voyages. Yes. They also have facilities where their, their sets are permanently housed. Sure. And and it's we said right up front that that's what we were going to do. We were going to get a facility like that. And I, I never understood. I'm like, what did people think we were going to do? Well, that's how, what we said we were going to do. Have, have you found out from CBS's point of view, has it ever come out in terms of why 
Star Trek Continues and New Voyages, these other fan films that, again, are on YouTube and people can see those. Um, well, yeah, why they're exempt or, or at least, yeah, why, they, well, why yes, they're Well, yes, I'll tell you, yeah. a lot of people, are, who, anyone who listens to this podcast is now going to, especially the haters, are going to balk <laughs> at what I'm about to say. <laughs> but during the discovery phase, we were given thousands of emails from the uh, opposing side, and I read them all. And the reason that we were sued is, first of all, as good as I like Star Trek Continues very much, and I really enjoy watching Star Trek New Voyages because they're the best of the Star Trek fan films, but no one is ever going to mistake those for actual Star Trek because they're recreations of the original series that don't star the original actors. True. And as good as they look, no one is going to ever go, well, that's really Captain Kirk. Right. That's fair. They're, they're ne- that because that, they're 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 slavish recreations to the '60s series. Yes. So there is no way that they're going to be seen as competition for existing Star Trek product that CBS would want to make. True. What we discovered in uh, reading in Discovery in the Discovery phase was after we released the Vulcan scene. Uh, that I directed. Yes, and, you did. Conceived of, based great. on you know Christian's uh, original. Originally, that scene took place in a room, and then after certain discussions, we were going to set it outside, but it was never really delineated what was going to happen. And then Christian left the project, and I, I continued on with it, and I sort of conceived that it took place in the sculpture garden that was outside of Vulcan High Command. And what I wanted to do was show as a proof of concept, again, that we could have two characters in a virtual environment and people liked it, uh, would see it and go, oh, wow, that's really neat. Well, what happened was when I did that Vulcan scene, when you watch the scene with the opening of the Vulcan ships in orbit around Vulcan and Mount Soleil and Shakar City, yep. uh, the people at CBS said, this looks better than the last Star Trek series, Enterprise, which is where we got a lot of that iconography from. <laughs> And and they were they were they're like not only were we, we raising money, but the money wasn't the issue. They didn't sue us for raising money. I mean that was they made it a part of the case. Sure. But it was a copyright issue and they freaked out at the quality that we were able to come up with. And and a lot of people will balk at that. I mean people said to me, I love this criticism. People say, you know, Rob, even Christian Gossett, my good friend, said to me, Your Vulcan scene sucked. He said that to me. He actually, Aww. a friend of mine said this to me. Aww. And I said, well, you, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, Christian, I was trying to honor what you did. And uh, I was thinking to myself, and you quit. So, you know, you didn't. Now Christian has been saying he wants to get the footage back for Prelude to Axon and he could make it better. Oh, God. And I'm like, well, dude, you know what? Uh, no one was stopping you coming to edit if you wanted things changed. I mean, you seemed pretty happy when we finished the movie and it did win 47 film festival awards so (laughs) you know i mean going back and talking about your former colleagues like that is really gauche yeah it's shitty no that's shitty but but whatever you know and and it's so the the vulcan scene the fact that we were able to pull that off and it's very funny the criticism that has been leveled at me a lot people are like well dude you know it looks like the prequels it looked like something out of attack of the clones and i'm like Really? You mean something that I did for $13,000 in a parking lot one Saturday afternoon looks like Attack of the Clones? I'll take that criticism. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will take that criticism. 
And I, I mean, it's just it's so it's so funny because what people don't understand, especially people that like we as fans can look at the Star Wars prequels and hate them or or whatever, but it's thousands of people spent years of their lives working on those movies. Yep. Whether you like them or not, I mean, they were made at the very highest level. Yes. So if someone is going to criticize me for saying that my work looks like Attack of the Clones and we were doing it on one Saturday afternoon with natural sunlight and a 20-foot green screen because we couldn't have a bigger green screen out in in an environment that big because of the wind. I mean, a big a 20-foot green screen locked down is like a kite. I hear you. So, you know, we, we I thought I will stand by the Vulcan scene for any any um I'm very proud of that work and uh, Sure. I thought it was very cool what what everybody came up with and and um you know it was I will say this the Vulcan scene came out exactly as it was designed to come out. At a point. It is exactly it, it went off without a hitch. My director of photography Milton Santiago and I worked really hard to make that Vulcan scene and it was exactly the way it was planned. So I will accept any responsibility or take any criticism anybody <laughs> wants to level at me. And I, I say to this, you know what? I'm looking forward to seeing your Vulcan scene or your work, and I hope it's great. You know, That's Rob, what I hope when I see everything. I've heard, I've heard people, uh, and I love this, um, I guess, justification for Ed Wood, the director, because it's like, yeah, you know, he's the joke of Hollywood. He did manage to make six or eight movies and get them made. Mm-hmm. And, and also – Everyone will say, you know, Plan 9 for its goofiness, those graveyard scenes really do have a style to them. And you can't take that away from Ed Wood. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, yeah, Ed Wood and yes, the movie, you know, the Tim Burton movie and we all laugh and stuff. But if you really sit down and watch a couple moments of Plan 9 for Outer Space, it does have a few moments where there's definitely technique going on. And again, on a shoestring budget, you got to give them a little bit of credit. And it, that, well, you know, and, I, and forgive the comparison because obviously I think Prelude and your Vulcan scene are much better than that. But you know what I'm saying? You got no, it done. absolutely. You well, got what's, shit done. You know, you've what's, done a lot. What's what's in it, what's I think is really interesting. What people forget, I think, is that there is a sensibility. Everybody thinks that they can make a film. Yes. I, I mean, I know that I can't do brain surgery. <laughs> I know that I'll never be a great day trader on Wall Street. But I've spent my life studying cinema. Yeah. And while I haven't had a lot of at-bats making directing feature films, I think if you look at my the quality of the actual storytelling in my Star Trek documentaries, for instance, I think that there's, uh, there's some emotional impact in those documentaries, that you actually feel something uh, the way we put them together. I think you're right. So, <laughs> you know, there are people that, that just don't, Everybody thinks they can make a movie, but there are people that don't ever – they never will have the sensibility required to know how to tell a great story. Now, that doesn't – because making movies is, is very three-dimensional. It's not just you, – you have to understand so many different things in the proscenium of the frame in order to make it believable. Sure. That's why there's only ten guys and, and a few girls on the planet Earth – right now of the almost 7 billion of us that are hired by major motion picture studios to direct $100 million movies. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's incredibly difficult, and having that sensibility to make a great film is very, very rare. And, and a guy like Ed Wood, 
he was out there swinging. You know, he was trying to make movies. He didn't have this. He look. It, it, it's like when you write a screenplay. When you finish a screenplay and you print it out and you're holding it in your hand, it's 120 pages or 90 pages or however long it is. There's weight to it, and you 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 hold it in one hand and you feel the weight of that. And there's a pride that sweeps over you, and you're like, "Man, I wrote this." Now it could be garbage. It could be horrifically bad. It could be the worst screenplay ever written. But you did write those 120 pages and you did print them out. And, and at the end of the day, uh, how many people can say they've done that? Right. And so there are, you get caught up in the fact that you've, you've accomplished this and sometimes that's enough. You know, I, I have a friend who is a, a fairly – a pretty good science fiction writer. He wrote a few teleplays in the 80s. But he's really, he's really, really arrogant. And he, he thought that he could just go make a movie. I mean, if I made a movie, sure, certainly he could, right? Okay. And he made it after Free Enterprise. And I'm not going to say his name or what the movie is, but it does star another Star Trek, a TOS alumnus. Okay. And, and it is, when he showed it to me, and it's, I'll tell you, it's, it's on my IMDb. I'm, I'm credited as a, consulting editor on it it is easily one of the worst movies i've ever seen (laughs) ever because there's the the you can see in the actual filmmaking that there isn't enough of an understanding of how a movie is actually made and and everybody thinks they can make one but you can set up a camera and set up a shot and have an actor in the frame but that doesn't mean you're going to know if what you're getting is good or not you know, the same thing is true. In making movies, there is a certain magic to it. And the people that make good movies are magicians. Absolutely. Because they have a certain uh, uh, skill set and they have a certain understanding and knowledge of things that is inherent that you can't, you can't really teach. And you can kind of study it and learn it. But there's something innate in people that allows them to do it well. And that's why... Uh, not a lot of people make movies. Well, and further, you need not only a great director, but a great cinematographer, a great editor. I mean, I think of the relationships that Spielberg, and you're going to know the name before I do, but his... Michael Kahn. Well, that's interesting. I was going to say the guy that, uh, since Schindler's List, the Eastern European guy that he's been working with. Oh, you you mean his... his, Was that his DP? No, Michael Kahn's his editor. Okay, Michael Michael Kahn is Spielberg's editor. I was thinking of Spielberg's... Uh, yeah, who, who, cut, who shot Jurassic Park and Janos Kaminsky. There you go, Janos Kaminsky, exactly. Yeah. And in the case of editors, Scorsese and, and Thelma Schumacher, or Schumacher, I forget how you Schumacher, say Schumacher, yeah. She's, I mean, again, you know, you look at the, the people that, that once you find, like Brian Singer, who I know very well, he uses um, John Ottman to edit and compose for him which is unique in Hollywood, and Newton Thomas Siegel, Tom Siegel, shoots all of his movies. Wait, so because wait, the editor is also the, the music composer for the films? Yes. Wow. John Ottman, yeah, he wrote the scores for, he edited and wrote the scores for Usual Suspects, for X2, oh my God. for Days of Future Past, for Apocalypse, um, for Valkyrie, I had for no idea. Jack the Giant Slayer. That's yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly unique. Yeah, Jesus Christ. That's, ama- that's like Babe Ruth. Pitching and hitting home runs. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's an amazing – there's never been somebody in Hollywood like that. But but it, in a way, it makes sense because editorial 
And I, you know, I identify myself as an editor first and foremost. I don't identify myself as a director because I've only directed one movie, a couple of shorts and TV episodes. And, and, uh, I'd like to, of course, direct more. I'm always looking to do that, but editorial has been my bread and butter. I really love editing. And, um, uh, John Ottman, in his case, music and rhythm it makes sense that an editor would would be a composer because editorial is all, also about rhythm, you know, rhythm and, and setting and, the and mood, feeling. Absolutely, yes, yes, no. That's two two areas that again complete the composition of of what we see, and that's great that it's one guy. And again, that yeah, he knows exactly visually and and uh, both atmospherically what what music does. That no, that makes a lot of sense. That's terrific, though. Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know, and and um, he's great. They're 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 great, and it's it, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I obviously want to get back to directing. I mean, I've tried. We tried to get Free Enterprise two off the ground, and I'm always I've always got projects that I'm trying to get set up. But nothing, it's it's tough. Has it, nothing's changed? You know, we we talked about this before too. That um, to get it in HD, you said would really cost like fifty grand or something. And the original producers are like, yeah, that's not going to happen. You mean Free Enterprise? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I found out here's here's I can honestly say the only person whose career was professionally hurt by free enterprise by the Oxnard lawsuit was me, because one of the things that I found out in discovery was that La La Land Records, who puts out all of the great Star Trek soundtracks. Yes. They put out the they they were going to start a video label. Uh, the same way Twilight Time or or uh, some of these other Scream Factory have boutique labels. They were going to start a, a video label, and the first two movies they were going to release were Free Enterprise and The Specials, oh. which is the movie that we produced after Free Enterprise. And I didn't know this because Mark Altman frequently makes deals and doesn't tell me what's going on. Okay. Um, and I found this out in Discovery because after the lawsuit hit, La La Land – a great licensee uh, of CBS. They do such good work, and I don't begrudge them this at all. They um, uh, it, they sent a letter on the 6th of January of 2016 to CBS saying, hey, we were going to release Free Enterprise. I mean, Robert Burnett is involved with the Axonar lawsuit. Should we not release Should we not release Free Enterprise? And they were told to hold off. Ah. Oh. So, uh, yeah. So, and, and, uh, I've subsequently, I had a friend, uh, ask, uh, who works for La La Land uh, frequently asked about it and they have no plans to move forward with free enterprise on Blu-ray in 2017. Oh, geez, man. So it's, it's monumentally frustrating that as a DVD producer myself, you know, and as an editor, the one film that I ever made that I get asked about literally every day. Sure. People ask me or contact me every day. And there's, you know, Free Enterprise came out in 2006 on DVD. It's been out of print since then. Yes, I was lucky to get it on Amazon after our first talk. Go on. Yeah. And it's, it's a shame that it's, you know, not, it's unavailable. And I mean, there's more of an audience for the film now than ever before. It's kind of forgotten. And I really want to, I want, there's a few tweaks I'd make kind of like Oliver Stone did his third version of Alexander. I'd love to do the third version (laughs) of the definitive version of free enterprise. 
um, you know, I'd love to get it out there because uh, there's things I want to do the film, and I think it would do really, really well. Absolutely. And you know, William Shatner's not getting any younger, and I'd love to try and record a new commentary with him. Oh God, that would be great. Yeah, no kidding. Mm-hmm. Jesus, no man. I mean, I you know, I saw it first on cable, fell in love with it. You told me about its Chicago background with uh, with Rafer Weigel, and I, I had no yeah. idea. We talked about that in our first conversation. Uh, it's no, it's a terrific, it's a terrific movie, and that sucks, man. Because I would hope that you would be. I, I, I assume, you know, I, I really hope it isn't hurting you professionally to try and get some TV gigs because I think you've got the understanding of the geek world and everything to give people what they want. And God, with all the Netflix product and the CW shows and stuff, are you are you Pushana Nangrata? Have you tried for these? Uh... No, no, I, I, I'm absolutely. I've I've got a lot of things and irons in the fire. Terrific, a lot man. of things happening, and you know, it's it's interesting because I tend to get involved in these projects. Like when I was involved with the Star Trek Blu-rays, the Next mm-hmm. Generation Blu-rays, I was pretty focused on that. Like I spent three years. The only thing I did during that time was I directed a short. Because uh, some friends asked me to do it for them, and then I started working on on Axanar. I, I did Axanar, you know, in my spare time right. during that time. But for the most part, when I get involved in these projects, like Tango Shalom, has been a singular uh, effort. And now I'm really trying because there's a lot of opportunity out there, especially if you're working in the low budget arena. I'm looking to do more to branch right. out. And and the Axanar case really hasn't hurt me at all because. My name was not really involved. I wasn't sued. I wasn't named. Although when I did find out that Free Enterprise was not going to be released because of the lawsuit, I was understandably miffed. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, what did what did one thing have to do with the other? Especially because CBS is not. It's it's not like they weren't releasing the box set back in June. The box set of all of the Next Generation. Blu-rays came out, the entire series came out, and Enterprise came out, which I also worked on. So it's not like they held up the release of those things because I worked on them. It's not like <laughs> I host I host a roundtable um, 25th anniversary cast reunion of, of the entire cast of Next Generation on the Season 2 Blu-ray. Yes. It's not like they suddenly said, well, we've got to take Rob Burnett off of that. <laughs> they didn't do that. So the idea that, that La La Land Records wouldn't release Free Enterprise is a little silly, but I understand they're an incredible company and they've done, I mean, their box set of the original series music is my favorite CD of all time. I waited almost my entire, my first, I bought my first CD in 1983 and that came out in what, 2012, 2013. So I waited how long to get that. And it's the greatest, they do such a great job. And I love La La Land records. I mean, Heck, they just put out the score for Less Than Zero, which I've waited for for 30 years. <laughs> Thomas Newman's score. I mean, they put that out. I jumped all over that shit. I mean, Hilarious. come on. Yeah, awesome. And for me, it would be a real honor to, to have Free Enterprise come out on on under La La Land's label. I think that'd be great. I hear you. Dude, I'm telling you, as, as you say, and I'm not surprised you keep getting good feedback from Free Enterprise all the time. It's no, it's it's a tremendous film, and you're right. It is the Big Bang Theory before the Big Bang Theory, and everybody played their parts perfectly. They really did. Yeah, and you know, it's it's fun to see. I mean, I I, I look at Eric McCormack, and he, you know, I just watched yeah. Travelers on Netflix, and he's they're doing it. They're bringing Will and Grace back. I know it's that crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I've always thought. I mean, I think he's Eric McCormack. He's a great actor, and I he's another guy that I think should have had a much bigger career. Than he's had, 
I mean, he's done good work, but you know, but I have to say, he did tell me when we were making Free Enterprise, he said, you know what? I just want to get on a sitcom. I want to get on a sitcom. I want it to run 10 years and I'll be fine. That's awesome. Well, there and, you go. And, and he certainly did that. Absolutely. So, That's very much like William Peterson and Ted Danson when they were making Cousins because I got to know uh, Bill before uh, CSI came up. And they were making Cousins. And he's like, man, doesn't it suck doing a sitcom? And Danson's like, no, man, it's the perfect schedule. You know, you work Monday through Thursday. You got a nice weekend. He goes, it's 10 hours a day. You still have enough time. If you want to do something at night, you can. And he's just telling them how great it was working on a sitcom schedule. And then all of a sudden, Les Moonves of CBS is like, hey, Bill Peterson, you want to do a TV show? And he's like, well, uh, apparently, yes, I do. <laughs> first of all, Billy Peterson is one of my favorite. I, I love that guy. Great guy. And and the first time I ever saw him, he plays a bouncer or a he, yes. for a two seconds yes. in Michael Mann's Thief. Yep. You know, and uh, you know, which some, takes place at the Green Mill. When I was first in Chicago with Rafer, I'm like, dude, we have to go to the Green Mill. Oh, that's so funny! Why, I just shot something why, for TV at the Green Mill. Go ahead. He's like, why do you want to go to the Green Mill? I go, dude, because James Caan owned it in Thief. I have to go to the Green Mill. <laughs> you know, and by the way, the Green Mill was totally rad. It was so cool. There was it's... like a jazz band playing there. It was the coolest thing. I'm like, it was just, it, it was, it was going to a place that you saw in a movie that was even cooler than the movie portrayed it as. Oh, absolutely! It's it's le legitimately a Chicago gangster hangout from the 20s. It was definitely oh. a Capone joint. And, and, and the, the the neon sign outside the the like wave or whatever was just like it was in in Thief. Yep. Yep. And and I then of, of course William Peterson to me one of my favorite movies of the 80s is To Live and Die in L.A. Sure. And you know that was his basically his first film role, and and Friedkin had seen him on stage in in Chicago. That's right. And then he did um, for Michael Mann. He did Manhunter the year a year later. Yep. And and I I've loved that guy, and I thought he was going to have. But again, he's a guy you look at some people's careers, and he was in Cousins, and he was in he played the father and the. Mark Wahlberg, fear. what was the movie? Fear, yeah, yes. Father and Fear. I gave him grief about that. I'm like, dude, you're not supposed to be the dad. You're supposed to get the girl. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> right, like, right. He's like, yeah, and tell Hollywood that, man. I'm getting too old. I'm like, all right. But he, he was the best. I mean, I love that guy. And, Great of course, guy. basically, I am convinced that CSI <laughs> exists because somebody saw Manhunter and said, let's do a series about that dude. Exactly. Exactly. That's what it was. I mean, yep. you know, profiling became much bigger, and there were so many novels written about it. We'd seen profilers in so many movies, but it was really Thomas Harris. It was really Red Dragon right. that put profiling on the map. Absolutely. It was funny when he told us about it. He's like, because he wanted to do, and I know I've told this story on Word Balloon before, but I'm doing this for Rob's Entertainment. He wanted to bring back Have Gun, Will Travel. That was what he was pushing for CBS. And they're like, well, you know, we're doing Magnificent Seven right now as a TV show. It's not really working. How about CSI? And it's great because he initially is like, okay, well, first of all, it's like Quincy, but it's not. And, he, and we're like, okay, whatever. But he was very quick to be defensive about, like, don't compare us to Quincy because there's a lot of good in Quincy, but we're doing it very different. And, again, it's that Red Dragon influence and everything. And like you said, Are you still manager, friends with him? Only very occasionally, and I have not talked to him in about five years. But it's funny. I have a bunch of mutual friends that do stay in touch with him. So, I will bet you. I will bet you. <laughs> He's made over $100 million off CSI. Exactly. Well, like you said, and that was going to be my point with, with Eric McCormick. And I'm not making that number up. I, I, oh, I no, you're right. I think that's an actual real number. Well, he is an active producer on not only the original, but all the satellite shows. 
and yeah, gets the global you know benefits of that global syndication. It's one of the most successful shows of the 2000s. And yeah, that's why you don't see Bill work anymore because he, I mean, he turned down that role in Platoon and now I'm blanking the guy from some, someone to watch over me and the, the big Tom Berenger, Tom Berenger. He turned, turned down Tom Berenger's role in Platoon because he's like, eh, kind of sounds uncomfortable. I forget like if they shot in Burma or wherever they shot a Platoon in and he's like, I don't think I want to sweat for that many months out there. No, thanks. And it's those kind of roles that I think would have only elevated his uh, cinematic career. And again, you know, he found this wonderful vehicle at the perfect time. And, you know, it's so weird. I used to think that that was a more recent, like, TV thing where, you know, the movie stars are getting kind of too old, so they're going to turn to TV, both men and women. Glenn Close did it, obviously, on FX with... um, you know, the shield and, and the damages and too. damages, certainly. Exactly. So, you know, what a great thing. But then you really do look at really television since the very beginning. And that's always kind of been that go to, well, you know, so and so can't be a leading man anymore in film. Let's give him a TV series. But now they really make money from it. And you're right. William Bill is Bill's sitting very comfortably. In his three houses right. across the group. But, it, you know, it's globe. funny. He, <laughs> I always there was something about him. Especially a lot of people thought his his performance in Manhunter was sort of one note, and I never thought that was true. I, I mean, it was it was that film both in to, to Live and Die in L.A. His he, the homoerotic Secret Service <laughs> agent he plays <laughs> with his bow legged walk and his scarf in L.A. I mean, I love I love him in that movie so much. I mean, it's 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 I was so gay for William Peterson, I, I, a straight I, man, but I, watching I, that movie. Couldn't you know, agree more, like, man. I mean, he, he I lo- love that guy. You I know, mean, I worked- he was so good. And then watching Manhunter, I thought, here was a guy. And by the way, both <laughs> both Manhunter and To Live and Die in L.A. was a very – it was not a hit. You know, it, it was – it kind of flew under the radar. It was William Friedkin trying to make, get back to what he used to be. And, and, and stuff, yeah. And I went and saw that movie the opening, opening weekend. I was blown away by it because – it came out the same year as Miami Vice premiered. Yes, in nineteen eighty-five, and and it had to live and die in L.A. had a great. I don't think there's another American film that encapsulates the mid eighties. Robert Downey Jr.'s dad is in that movie. <laughs> you know, That's right? Robert yeah. Downey Jr. Senior. Well, it's got, and, it, and Prosky. I mean, you know, or no? I'm thinking of Thief. Excuse me. Yeah, uh, but because I was going to say Thief is also in that vein as well in terms of those eighties. Neo Noirs. Oh well, uh, Thief came out in '81, and Thief is still yeah, one of my favorite fav- favorite movies. Like, if you love Goodfellas and you love Thief, and I'm surprised at how many people don't know Thief. Exactly, because Thief is, I mean, it is a Miami Vice episode writ large on the big screen. I mean, James Caan's performance, Robert Prosky is one of the greatest villains ever. Yep. yep. He utters the greatest line of profanity in any movie ever, and I will not say it because it's. <laughs> Well, you need to very, see the movie to appreciate it, absolutely. It's very uh, bad. That's true. But, too. you know, <laughs> Criterion released Thief on Blu-ray, and it's it, Tangerine Dream, the score, is still probably their best score ever done for a movie. Sure. And and it is, uh, you know, these things are, you go to movies now, and they're good, you know, but movies have become, of course, the studios are making such a corporate product now, and fr- franchises, and you're, you don't get you don't get to see these world class filmmakers working. Uh, I mean, you, you you make one small independent movie like Monsters, and then suddenly you're directing Godzilla for Legendary and Universal. Right, 
Yes. There, there's no – and you don't have a career. And then you direct Rogue One and you're you, – I, well, I, I don't know. There's So you don't have – the new filmmakers don't have a whole – you know, an oeuvre of movies to go back and look at and watch their development as filmmakers, which That's is sort of, one. it's sort of sad, but Absolutely. it's the world we live in. And Hey, you know what, if I could make a, uh, another film and I spent 150 grand on it and somebody said, Hey man, you want to direct Godzilla? I'm like, yeah. Now Mike Doherty, who I've known for years, Mike Doherty, who, who, uh, wrote X2 with, uh, Dan Harris and he wrote Superman returns and he directed trick or treat and Krampus is now directing the new Godzilla King of the monsters. So, wow. You never know. You, no, you yeah, well, be one look step at, away. Is it Ryan Cogling from Fruitville Station and Creed to, you know, Black Panther? And we're going to see wow, how, right. how, how we'll see how he handles. You know, well, you know what's great about what I what I love about him, what he did is that I loved Creed. Me too, man. I loved Creed, and and the story of how, you know, Cooler was talking about how he would watch the Rocky movies with his father when his mom was dying of cancer. Yeah, yeah, and. And, you know, it was his – can you imagine you've made one movie, very well-received, Fruitville Station, great film, and and your second movie, you have to go to Sylvester Stallone and go, <laughs> dude, I know you don't know me, but I have this idea. Like I know I'm going to take this character that you played in six previous movies and, you know, won Academy Award for Best Picture. But And I know you don't know who I am, but I want to make another Rocky movie. And he actually convinced Sylvester Stallone at some point to go – Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is an astonishing story about about perseverance and about Hollywood and about awesomeness, you know. And and I relate because William Shatter told us four times no when we were trying to make Free Enterprise. Sure. He was like, "What the hell is this? Why are you doing?" It? No, I'm not going to be in this crazy movie. <laughs> and and uh, you know, I know what it's like to go after you, but I love that he had the balls to do it. And no question, Creed is so good. It's, I mean, the portrayal of Rocky, it's such a fitting conclusion yes. to the – I mean, hell, I've watched Creed too. It honors but, but, it honors the character and also invigorates the franchise with the focus on the new guy. And it, but it absolutely. Does it, and it's not, a, it's not a bullshit cameo. It is a Butch and Sundance kind of a relationship with Rocky. And oh, Creed. yeah. And, and what's know. great is you love Adonis Creed in that movie. Yes. And you love that guy. Yes. And and it's so the characters were and, and Tessa was Tessa Thompson who played the girl the love interest yes which she's is, great absolutely I mean I can't she's she's Valkyrie in in Thor Ragnarok which I can't wait to see that's true but I I mean it's so <laughs> it, the whole thing is just so great I mean everything about um that film was great and it, 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 I love seeing that I mean I love this new trend of instead of rebooting a movie and doing it over. To do a sequel where you bring back the original characters. Sometimes it works really well, like in Creed. Sometimes not so well, like in Tron Legacy. But I right. like the fact that they're doing that. I, well, like I agree the fact with you. That... Yeah, I appreciate the direction. I agree with that. Absolutely. And there are too many reboots for reboot sakes without that kind of thought behind it of let's honor the old stuff and figure out a way of, of bringing it back into the new product and everything. And it legitimizes. You know, I don't know. I'm sure... And I and I again I believe I mentioned it in the intro, but I love listening when you are on uh, John Schnepp's uh, and, and you guys do your oh on collider. heroes yeah not heroes excuse me I was going to say the Collider podcast is it heroes now yeah well it's called Collider Heroes okay that's right no, excuse me Collider Heroes that's right yeah well I haven't heard you guys discuss uh, the Star Wars title the new Star the Episode Eight title 
And, uh, you know, yeah, I, as much as I want to, I hope they don't kill off more. I mean, obviously they're going to have to do it with Carrie Fisher, but I really do hope that, that uh, Mark makes it at least to episode nine. Before. Well, yeah, you know, I, I, what's interesting is we don't, we don't cover the Star Wars movies. We only cover comic book films because there's Jedi Council. Oh, you know? okay. Oh, that's okay. Interesting. I didn't realize there was that uh, qualifier. Oh, there's a that's whole – Collider man. has all – there's movie talk. There's TV talk. There's Collider Nightmares that Schnepp's also on. There's Jedi Council, and then we do, we do Heroes. Yeah, that's heroes, been yeah. another thing that's been like suddenly you know, being on that show and being on the Schmodown movie trivia battle that they asked me to be on. Other than the fact that it makes me want to work out and lose 40 pounds and get my face tighter again. Oh, so you and me, Rob. Weird... Don't worry about it, man. I understand. I've, I got the Fitbit to prove it. Don't worry. We'll get down it's, to our, weight, our fighting It's weight. so funny. I mean, I, 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 you know, I worked out like eight years ago and dropped 40 pounds and was back down to my high school weight, and I looked great. But now being sedentary and editing, it's, it's, it's hard to do. But you go on these shows, and you're like, oh, man, I got to pull like a Jimmy Kimmel when he was paunchy when he first started that show. And you know, now he's all svelte and handsome. I got to go do that again. Yeah, well, either that or but, the uh, the video uh, directors of the heart videos when uh, Nancy was uh, too heavy. And, oh, right. And they and they do the trick mirrors on her to thin her up, thin her up and everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> go on. Anne, Anne, Anne Wilson. Oh, excuse me. It is Anne. Nancy's the, Nancy's the blonde. That's right. Nancy's the hot one. Yes, indeed. Actually, yeah. I have to say that Anne Wilson was oh, she's one of the most beautiful women in in rock and roll. And and yeah. and. I still believe to this day that she is one of the greatest uh, female rock vocalists, if not the greatest of all time. You can make an argument. She belongs on the Mount Rushmore. I agree. That kind of power she, voice, absolutely. Man. She's amazing. I mean, Magic whether it's Magic. Janis Joplin or, oh, she's incredible. Yeah, hilarious. Good tangent. Um, yeah, she's great. <laughs> so so Collider Heroes. Yeah, and seriously, man, you're, you're great on that show. And I'm really glad that you are podcasting more. And I just heard you on the Axonar Update podcast as well. Uh, which I will point people to as as well to get more from Alex. Yeah, you know it's it's funny. A lot Where of people have a lot of people ask me like, why are you sticking with this project? Like, why didn't you just give it up and run away? And I'm like, well, I, that's just not my style. I don't I don't I don't run away from things. And and Alec Peters, quite frankly, has been very good to me. You know, he's been a, he's been a good friend. He's um, he was going to allow me the opportunity to, to direct this movie. And I'll tell you, there are other people in my life that I've had for a long, been in my life for a long time who have not given me those opportunities or have actively worked against me getting certain opportunities. And, and for, for as crazy as Alec can be, uh, as all people can be in the entertainment industry, he's been very good to me. Cool. And I, uh, I believed in what he wanted to do and prelude to Axnar. People forget that prelude to Axnar is also an example of what it was. We all worked on when, when Christian Gossett now comes out and goes on podcasts and says, well, you know, donate money to me. Cause I was the one that really made prelude to Axnar. And I'm like, really? I mean, our special effects guy, Tobias Richter was working on the feature with me. Alex Bornstein, our composer was working on the feature with me. Uh, Milton Santiago, who shot Prelude to Axnar, was also working on the feature with me. So, you know, the movies are made by a group of very talented people who come together to create something that is greater than the sum of the parts. Sure. And, and I think, you know, one thing that you'll never hear me do is I will never uh, poo-poo or diminish the contributions people make uh, in motion pictures because – 
it is a it is a field that requires incredible um, uh, excellence, a- incredible talent, incredible devotion to the work, and um, anybody who will engage in such an endeavor gets my respect because it is a really hard business and it is a really hard thing to do to make a great film. And I think when you have a great film, whether there was creative tension on the set or whatever went into making that great film is it's always worth end. And once the product, the final product comes out, always let the product lead. You know, I've always believed that the work is what you should put on a pedestal and the work is what should always be looked at and be exalted. The people are great and the people that make work are great, but it's the work itself that can transcend time that can inspire generation after generation that it's, it's like making a great film is, is spinning straw into gold. I've often said, it's like your, your Rumpelstiltskin. It's just that there might be a thousand Rumpelstiltskins working on one movie. And, and I think that, you know, that's watching great cinema is one of, I love it. Like, I'm cutting Tango Shalom. I'm with the director, Gabe Bologna, every day. And he and I are just having the best time. I and mean, we're cutting footage that he shot, but um, we're turning it into something that there are things that he's allowing me to, again, to contribute uh, far more than I think a lot of editors get to. And, and it's it's been a great experience. And I've had that experience many, many times in the motion picture business, whether I was producing, whether I was directing, whether I was writing, whether I was a PA or whether I was – you know what I did? Um, I think right before we talked last time, I had – I was shooting behind-the-scenes material for Leah Thompson's directorial debut. Crazy. You know, I was asked – Leah Thompson, who played Michael J. Fox's mother in Back to the Future <laughs> – she was she was a you know she was all of our crushes and and uh, you know like oh in so, some kind of wonderful. How, it, what's really funny is Howard Deutsch, who directed some kind of wonderful. Yeah. She married him. And, Crazy! And, I didn't know that. Yeah, she's married to Howard Deutsch, and Zoe Deutsch, her um, daughter. daughter, starred in the new James Franco movie Why Him, where hilarious. Yeah, she's getting and so so. Uh, the the Christmas I'm bringing my boyfriend movie to um, Brian Cranston right to Brian Cranston and and she stars in that and now I worked on this film and now I shot behind the scenes on it and it's it's called the Year of Spectacular Men and it was actually written by her daughter Madeline hilarious and and, and so th- this company that I was editing for you know asked me to come shoot behind the scenes and what was really interesting was you know I've been shooting behind the scenes on Lord of the Rings, on Chronicles yep. of Narnia, you know, on X-Men, whatever. X-Men well, nobody knew out. that. You know, they just were paying me a couple of grand or whatever and to come show up, and, and, and nobody knew who I was. You know, and normally I'm used to working with the director. You know, when you're a DVD producer, you it's a director's medium, and so you're really working for the director. Well, Leah Thompson didn't know who I was, and she just thought I was, you know, and I was. I was really, I was just some EPK guy. Like, why, why would okay. she have to worry herself about me? But it was the kind of thing where I tried to shoot good behind the scenes for her, you know, and, and there was one moment when I got to interview Howard Deutsch and I was like, dude, and I got to ask him, I, I got to ask him a question. I, I was like, I was like, I got to ask you something. And, 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 and we're talking and, and it, uh, clearly he knew that I wasn't some douche, but I, I, I go, can I ask you a, a question, a, a question about your film? And, and he goes, well, sure. What do you want to ask me? And I said, well, 
you know, in the opening of Some Kind of Wonderful, which which I love, I love Some Kind of Wonderful. I'm like, you know, Watts, who who uh, Mary Elizabeth, um, what's her name? Who, God, why? Oh, I know. Is it Masterson? Yeah, Mary Elizabeth Masterson. No. I go Watts. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Watts. The... I go Watts is playing. Yeah, the tomboy. Yeah, the tomboy. She's playing the drums in the opening of the film. Yes. And she's playing to a <laughs> propaganda song. Which is a band that's on the ZTT label that Trevor Horn produces, <laughs> and and I was a big ZTT fan in the '80s because I love Frankie Goes Hollywood, and I go, Hilarious. I go, yes, of course. Did you pick that propaganda song? Because that's actually a, a propaganda remix. Did you pick that? <laughs> he, just, he just looks at me like this was the last question in the world that he was expecting anybody to ask him, and he he, he looks at me, he goes, no, you know, John was the music guy. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew, Chinese, I knew yeah. that he was thinking like, I'm on the, I'm on the set, I'm on the crew, so I'm, I'm, I must be okay. But I've asked him the most deep cut geeky music question <laughs> from a movie like this was in 2015, and and I was gonna say it was 29 years ago. ago. You know, it's like okay, and and, and <laughs> it's just so funny. But but it was it was it was interesting because as I'm talking That's to great. him, and he's a, by the way a very personable, nice man, and. Terrific guy, awesome. and, and they seem to have a great family. It was really a family affair because he's a producer on the movie too. But when I'm asking him this question, he knew <laughs> that this question was so off the wall and so deep cut that that I was okay. <laughs> that's, <laughs> you know? cool. that's cool, man. That's <laughs> but really it was cool. then I realized I was like, oh, I shouldn't have asked him that question, should I have? <laughs> One step over the line. Yeah, well, it's very it's, nice. Though. You know, it was, it, but I, but that's been. The funny thing, like in Free Enterprise, when I wanted to to get the Cults song "She Sells Sanctuary," I was told by my music supervisor that Ian Asbury, the lead singer of the Cult, would like to speak to me. Would I meet with him and explain why wow. I wanted that song? <laughs> and I'm like, "That's fantastic!" I'm like, "Hell yeah, I will," because I love the Cult. Exactly. You know, and I went down there and I, I told him, I said, "You know, I've seen you t- uh, three times live," and he goes, "Oh, really? Well, where?" And I had to explain like where I had seen him on which tours. Sure. And 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 he was like, oh, so he knew that I was. I love the fact that he wanted to know that I was genuine. You know that that because I am a monster geek, not just about comics or movies, but music as well. And and you know, I told him, and and I love the fact that he um, wanted to know. And I had to explain. I'm like, he's like, well, why she sells sanctuary, and why do you want the long version of it? And I said, well, you know, the album version has the long when you're 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 going hey 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 in the beginning, and Billy Duffy's guitar is going over his singing, and I'm like, I need that, I need that introduction to like build up the scene. And he's like, yeah, but why that song? And I said, well, well, you know, there's this whole allusion to the movie Logan's Run, and they're looking for sanctuary. And and in my own mind, sanctuary is finding the real girl that you want to marry, or you want. To, Absolutely, that's what sanctuary yes. is. I give him this whole long explanation. He's just staring at me like I'm completely crazy. But he's like, he's like, mate, you could have the song. That's fantastic. So <laughs> you know, and it's it's, it's... listen, Dexy's Midnight Runners. This is why I need your Jackie Wilson. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> come on, Eileen. No, I understand. Yes, come on, Eileen, of course, the real hit, absolutely. But they did do the... Yeah, I know. The Van Morrison song as well. Of course you know. We're in that same We're in that same generation, Rob. And also, you know, uh, Frank Santo Padre on Gilbert Gottfried's podcast, and also Drew Friedman. 
has used this word as well. I believe we qualify as travelers. I've never heard that used before, but were these all, you know, consumed by our, uh, the, our geek interests and stuff that we have to know every little detail chapter in first, and also that we're not satisfied with the liner notes. We actually have to meet the people. And, and like you said, with Howard and everything, you have to ask that question. And it's okay. I've, I've done it a million times in sports and in film and television and, and, you know, and comics, obviously. So, yeah, it's, it's great. But, again, we really love it. And also we get, the, we get interesting answers from our questions. Well, you know, it's, and you I, certainly have over the years on your special. No, and it's, it's, it's really interesting because, um, look, everybody, a lot of people pretend like the stuff they do, they didn't agonize over it. It's just things that they did. You know, they don't want you to pull them up and put them on a pedestal or anything like that. But but there are just things. There are these wacky things that, that appeal to everyone. Everyone has their little thing that they don't – that just means something to them. Like what is it mm-hmm. – everybody's got that. And when you meet somebody that's involved with the – I love in my line of work, I have frequently met people that have made things that I love. You know, these these things that have been part of my life for years and years. And the, 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 like you said, yeah. travelers, they've traveled with me as I've grown older yeah. and, and moved through the years and moved through the decades. And, you know, they're just things that that I happen to love. Like, for instance, I do love Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And like I uh, I Good started stuff, talking to uh, Holly Johnson, the lead singer on like Twitter. You know, and, and suddenly he's, <laughs> he, he starts tweeting me back. And suddenly you can talk to people and ask these off-the-wall questions. But they know that you're a true fan when you're asking certain – look, you have to be respectful and you have to ask interesting questions. But they know right. when you're not some douche that's going, oh, I really love Relax. That's such a good song. <laughs> like you've never heard that before, right, dude? But but to me it exactly. was it was it was it was not just Frankie goes to Hollywood. It was Trevor Horn. It was the production. It was ZTT Records, and it was just that whole part of period of time. And when you find these things out, and what's been great about the modern age, especially living in Hollywood, is there's been so many times when, like Howard Deutsch, here I'm on a set. Like, how am I going to ever hang out with Howard Deutsch? And he was being That's interviewed true. by me for the for his wife's movie, and and we were finished with the interview, and I then I can say like he already knows I'm. I'm part of the crew, so I'm I'm part of the crew. I'm I'm like the caterer, the PA, or the sound man, or the camera guy. I'm just part of the crew, you know. So I can ask him the question, and he he's already disarmed because we're all working together. <laughs> so you yes. know, and and that's what's been great about being um, in this business is that I've met so many people who've made things that I love, and I can ask them questions like the the most off the wall obscure like weird questions that that only i would have come up with because of the way you know the way you love things like how i love yeah. to live and die in la i mean i love to live and die in la and 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 it, it's the kind yeah. of thing where where like when i met william freaking for the first time I, I i could have talked to him about the exorcist and i told him I said, but I really want to talk to you. Can I ask you a few questions about to live and die in L.A.? And he was like, yeah, man, nobody – no one asked me questions about to live and die in L.A. And I'm like, all right, well, let me ask you a few. And and it, it's funny because he didn't – William Friedkin didn't work less hard on to, to live and die in L.A. than he did on The Exorcist. He tried to make sure. everything that he made great, you know, and and, sure. and I think everybody tries that. And it's really interesting to bring it back to Axanar to – uh, 
to have people that are are actively, you know, pillaring you for whatever, but they don't understand like how much work and time and effort you put into everything that you do. And and with the Axenar film, months I put in months, thousands and thousands of hours. I mean, we were doing everything from shooting lighting tests to shooting uh, uh, camera tests of paint swaths to see how paint reacted that we were going to paint the set. I mean, it was so, sure. it was so, we, we, so much work was done. And, and that was something that has really been forgotten with this lawsuit is just how much work actually was completed and how much prep time was done. And we really were looking to make something spectacular. And that's something that I, I hope people don't forget. Well, I hope you're able to with the the two 15 minute you know uh, episodes that you're able to do this story with and everything. Yeah, I, th- I, I again, I think if Prelude to Axonar is any indication, I do think that's enough canvas for you guys to do something impressive. And the question will be, and I again, I really urge people to listen to the latest Axonar podcast uh, because uh, you and Alex kind of go over what what's going to happen moving forward. And I know you guys are going to have a skull session, and you just got to figure out how to turn your 90-minute to two-hour movie into these two 15-minute yeah, parts. Yeah, but we've I, – I, you know. Well, you know, we, we don't – like, I, on, to be honest with you, I don't know if I'm going to continue working on Axonar because – Oh, really? Yeah, okay. I mean, to be honest, I don't – Schedule-wise? Well, it's schedule-wise too, and also I – you know, unless we can do something that I feel is of – Unless we can do 30 minutes that blow people away, um, then to me there's no – like if I had my druthers, what I think we should do is because so much work has already been done, I think we should make the first half an hour of the film and and, and, and not even acknowledge – and when, the, when it's over, the credits run. And because the way we set it up, the way we crowdfunded is that we were going to make it in four parts anyway. And that was part of our, our crowdfunding campaign. And I think that we should shoot the first half an hour because so many assets exist. We shoot the narrative the way it was going to go. We, we shoot the script. I, I work with Bill Hunt, the writer, uh, refining the script all throughout 2016. And I think it's quite excellent. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people have dinged me because I said, this is the greatest Star Trek script ever written. Well, what I meant was, and, and I, in my deposition, uh, I said they they asked me they're like, well, you're you're making a Star Trek movie. I mean, how it's just like every other Star Trek movie, right? And I said, well, no. I said there's been 13 Star Trek movies over the last 38 years, and they've all been about the same thing. They've all been about the Starship Enterprise and her command crew. So mm-hmm. that's it. That's what a Star Trek movie is. There's been no other Star Trek movies. They've all been about. I said, we're not making a film about the Starship Enterprise or her command crew. We're making an ensemble film that's set in the Star Trek universe about characters, for the most part, you don't know. There's a few characters that you do, but for the most part, it's all it's a tapestry of brand new characters. Yes. And and it's an ensemble film. It's a lot along the lines of I always thought of it as sort of the hunt for Red October. I thought of Prelude to Axanar and then Axanar as a Tom Clancy-esque endeavor and and sure. it, it really was like red storm rising or, or hunt for red october and that's what i 
uh, was going for. That was my my because if you look at Hunt for October, yes, Jack Ryan is the principal character, but you're also on um, Scott Glenn's boat. You're on Stellan Skarsgård's boat. You're on um, the the Enterprise, the the um, the carrier, the aircraft carrier. Yes. You're on the rep. Yeah, well, and and also it's a it's a political movie as well. There's a lot of drawing room kind of conversations back mm-hmm. and forth. Is the political negotiation is going? No, it's a movie. On and a lot that of to levels, me absolutely. was exactly what Prelude. I mean, uh, the Axnar feature was. That's how I saw it. Mm-hmm. And and esque you know, thriller out of it. Now, when I was took over as director, the script there was never ever a finished a real finished script for Axnar. And then we okay. Oh, and just I don't mean to interrupt you, Rob, but like I was going to say, right now you were really distant sounding. Oh, I, I I'm sorry. Um, oh, that's okay. There, no, when no, I when I started again. on Axnar, there was never really a finished script. There was a draft that was being worked on by Alec Peters and um, Christian Gossett, but they never really finished a draft because Christian didn't didn't okay. uh, really finish his his work on it, so it was never done. And when I came to work, I had Bill Hunt, who helped me rewrite the Vulcan scene. Uh, we rewrote the script together. Bill did all the writing, but you know I was throwing out these ideas. And Alec sure. allowed that, and then Alec and Bill worked on the script for a long time together. And then Bill and I continued to refine it for a year. Um, but that's what I was going for. That's what I wanted to make. And I, you know, in a way, people have now said that Prelude to Axnar and then Axnar would be our the Star Trek universe's Rogue One. And in, in a sure. way, that's a very apt uh, description because it, it's a side story about an era of time that we've never seen before. And I, I did think it was sort of interesting that the new Star Trek series Discovery is set <laughs> yeah. literally in the exact same year as the Prelude to Axanar documentary is set in, which is 2255. And, and I, I was like, well, that's kind of weird. You know, like like the whole point of us doing this is that we figured no one is ever going to go back and, and delve into Star Trek history that's close to the era of the original series. Yeah, pre, pre-Christopher Pike, right. even, like, let alone like Shatner, why let would alone you, Kirk. Why would you do that? And the whole point of, of Roddenberry going 100 years forward in the next generation, or 80 years or whatever, was because yeah. there could be that much history and nobody would – you wouldn't be constrained by the continuity of the original series. And I sure. learned working on Next Generation, the, the Blu-rays, that the writing staff always was constrained by what had come before. And so... Which is amazing, yes. Well, Go why on. would you then make a series that's so close to the original? But I think, I mean, I will believe, because I know it was being looked at, that, you know, Prelude to had some kind of... Because there was not a television show on the horizon when we started the Axanar project. When we crowdfunded right. for Prelude, there was never there hadn't been Star Trek on the air for nine years. They they were That's making right. the they were yeah. making the JJ Abrams movies and you know, there right. was never any thought that we were going to be encroaching on anyone's uh, what they were doing. The last thing we wanted to do was encroach on CBS's uh, territory, which is the whole point of doing what we were doing. So we wouldn't encroach on them. And it was just sure. a weird, it was a very weird thing that suddenly, oh my God, like, oh, we're being sued and they're doing a show set in our time. 
which was really yeah, weird because modern frame. Star Trek had never yeah. done that. But, yeah. Not Very that, strange. That yeah, you, you, digital, you digitized out, so I, I put in some words there for uh, – in case, uh, in case you didn't come back, but there you go. Oh, you're, yeah, you're there. So, no, it was very <laughs> weird. It was a very weird thing, and and I look, I'm very looking very much forward to Star Trek Discovery. Although it, it, I'm dismayed. Star Trek needs a visionary. It needs a singular visionary at its heart, and now it seems like a show that look. There's capable people working on it, but the loss of Brian Fuller. Uh, makes me very not that interested in in the show even though they're going to follow his script and his outline but you know how it is people want to put their imprintur on things so we'll see oh absolutely well exactly i mean we saw that with agents of shield that really started off as a joss whedon television show and then all of a sudden he wasn't there and you know it's his lieutenants running the show but you can't help but wonder if joss was really guiding it the way that he did you know buffy and you know, at least Buffy at the, you know, the beginning. I mean, Angel had good lieutenants, I think, working on right. Angel. But, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, and yeah, I'm, I'm concerned as well. I'll still watch it. I mean, I always say, you know, you, they could put on Star Trek Klingon latrine cleaners and I'll. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> great. When, it, when do we you start? You know, it's, it's interesting because, <laughs> because modern Star Trek with, with first you had Roddenberry and then you really had Michael Piller uh, take over. Yes. And then Iris Stephen Bear and Ron Moore were the prime movers. And then, then there was Robert Hewitt Wolf. And, and there was a lot of great people that worked on Deep Space Nine. And, and Voyager, you had Pillar and you had Jerry Taylor. And then you had Brannon. And then Enterprise had Rick Berman and Brannon. Whether you liked them or not, there was a singular or dual yes. vision there. And yep. I, I fear that this new Star Trek series has too many cooks. They expect too much of it. And it'll be interesting to see what happens. But, you know, hey, I'm looking forward to it. There you go, man. No, you know, uh, hopefully they're they're learning the good lessons of uh, what Netflix has done with the Marvel Universe. And, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. I, you know, I don't I, – I love having marathon talks with you, but I also don't want to be an asshole and, like, keep you – No, not at all. don't have time to continue. Okay, great. I appreciate that because I do want to – I also, as I told you in uh, messages setting this up – I, I am interested in what you think of what is currently happening on uh, on TV and and what will be coming this year uh, film wise as far as superheroes. Well, you know, it's it's so it's really interesting. I never would have thought, and I've said this before. I've probably said it to you that we would not only have Avenger, an Avengers movie on the big screen, but it would be one of the highest grossing films of all time. And before that Avengers movie, we would have had singular. Captain America, and we would have had Iron Man, and we would have had Thor movies, sure. that we have Asgard portrayed on the big screen. Uh, I, I, I would never have thought that I would have ever saw Giant Man fighting Spider-Man in the airport. You know, I, yes. it's unbelievable where we have come as far as geek culture is concerned and comic book culture and the fact that the last Captain America movie grossed a billion dollars. Yep. A billion. And I think that, look, I'm really excited for all of these movies. Because even if you don't like, like, look, I hated Suicide Squad. I thought it was, I, I, <laughs> so I thought it was I. a mess. I thought it was just, I'm watching this film and, I, and look, I don't go into movies. I like David Ayer. I liked his script for Training Day. I liked sure. Fury. I liked End of Watch. Fury. You know, I, I don't go into these movies. I go into every movie wanting to love them. But sure. Suicide Squad to me was an example of a studio panicking 
and it was a film that has no it lost its center it it it, it was take yes. it was taken away from the director and you're watching you're watching a trailer company's edit of certain scenes like even scenes when Amanda Waller is sitting at dinner the way it's cut is like a, a trailer i'm like wait what and as an editor myself right. i sat in that movie theater and i hated every minute it was like who what cheese grater was used to edit this film because it was yes. incoherent and, and and the movie didn't make any sense at all and and what was interesting to me is the men on a mission movie warner brothers themselves if you're going to make a suicide squad movie they already made a movie that you can go and just copy which is soderbergh's oceans 11 oceans 11 is about a group of criminals that come together to pull off the ultimate heist and and in the film you've got Brad Pitt and and George Clooney anchoring that film but all the other characters all the other members of his team you get to see them in their native environments before they're brought onto the team you get to see Scott Kahn and you get to see Casey Affleck in Provo Utah racing the radio controlled replica right. of the full-size pickup truck you get to see That's Matt right. Damon ripping off people on the L train in Chicago you know he's pickpocketing them so you understand all you had to do was do the superhero version of that movie you know right. and then you go back and you look at where eagles dare or you look at the dirty dozen or you look at guns about, of navarro how about galactica's how about galactica's episode as i pointed out to you our last conversation the uh with the freeze ray on the, the gun on ice planet, planet zero yeah <laughs> which is another man on a mission yeah story. i mean i mean it to- dirty dozen it, Great escape. No, it totally is. You know. And you look at – and I, I was like – I'm watching Suicide Squad. I'm like, what the hell is this movie even about? Like – like, <laughs> like, and, and also the, 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 the Ben on a Mission movie, it's, it's like, okay, here's each character. Here's their contribution to the mission. And they yeah, each have to sense. do something. And he, if you know if one of them breaks the chain, the whole mission is foobarred. And, of course, right. one of them has to die, so it does get foobarred, and everyone has to improvise <laughs> and win. Richard Conti in Ocean's Eleven, the original Ocean's Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a, a time-worn genre of cinema, and it, you can't go wrong. Yes. But they did go wrong. And they totally went wrong. How, it made no sense, like you said. It was just, uh, and they're they're fighting some mystical and like what? But really, they're supposed to rescue Amanda Waller. I don't even know, but whatever. I I I was on a podcast earlier this evening, and I made the same point. Uh, Amanda Waller sends them on a mission to rescue, mm-hmm. and that makes no sense. Or you know, again, what is Captain Boomerang going to do against this godlike <laughs> supernatural threat? It just, and even her argument, uh, Superman's uh, you know dead. We got to worry about other aliens that are going to come to Earth. Let's get these well, guys. It, and, and you know, as you know, Ostrander's great comic book, Suicide Squad. There's a million stories they could have taken, and they didn't. They chose. Well, what, what's they, I don't, I don't what's know. so interesting to me is like, okay, I'm watching this movie. I'm like, this movie should have been about the Suicide Squad going after the Joker. Exactly. That's the movie. It's there. It's like it's yes. it's it's yes. you're waiting to see that movie and and what's interesting is that the whole point of the film what you don't know the MacGuffin or whatever the, the big revelation is that the whole thing is just the Joker's plan to get Harley Quinn back. Sure. So 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 at the end the movie should have ended with with them getting the Joker does get Harley Quinn back. Sure. And that's your movie, and you don't have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on special effects and all this 
you right. make your Ocean's Eleven movie for less than a hundred million, and and people would have. I mean, look. The funny thing is, is what do I know? What do you know? It made almost seven hundred million dollars worldwide. We're we're just chumps that are complaining. Exactly. No, we're the exactly we're the whiners. And and again, this podcast I was on earlier, the host is like, I liked it, and I know other podcast hosts that I might disagree with them, but I can't help. I can't blame them for liking something that's fine it's art at the end of the day it's subjective and enough word of mouth i think in contrast to all of us that were complaining about it online uh we're telling people no i liked it and and you know a john john q public you know they maybe have a different they like batman superman better than i think you and i have well it's interesting i i really liked the extended cut a lot more than the theatrical version which i which i really hated and and it's funny because I do – I really loved Man of Steel. A lot of people didn't, but I, I really did love Man of Steel. And okay. um, um, because I looked at it as a – what I find interesting about about uh, Superman is I thought Man of Steel was a great science fiction film about uh, an alien who discovers his destiny – now, you carry all that Superman baggage with you, but if you – to me, I was looking at it as a, a new take the same way I'd look at a DC Elseworlds story. Um, sure. And I really enjoyed Good it. I, I, you know, there's a lot of people – because there's a lot of people that complain. I mean the whole thing about – Superman's been Superman for like a week in that movie when Zod shows up. Yes. He, he's not even Superman. He doesn't even know like what's up. And, and basically he spends the end of that movie trying to not die. <laughs> like – like there's a, there's a guy trying <laughs> that's to kill him, and so everyone's like, "Well, an entire alien armada that's trying to kill him that are equal to his powers if they're left on Earth long enough." And maybe he, you know, obviously he doesn't discover that till near the end of the movie. But. Yeah, and, and and everyone's like, "Well, how come he's not?" I mean, Superman would never let those people in Metropolis die. He's like, he doesn't know he's su- Superman. He's not. He doesn't know that he's had got seventy five years of various stories that you've consumed. <laughs> All he knows in that movie is that he's been Superman for like a week. You know, he just found out he's an extraterrestrial. He's wondered, who the fuck have I been all this time? I don't know. But now he's fighting aliens? Like, the Earth doesn't know there's aliens. Now there's aliens. You know, and they all show up. I agree. And, yeah, I agree And with so that. if you look at that film as, as a, as a uh, science fiction thriller, I think it's a, a great sci-fi film. I love the design of it. I, I really liked everything about it. And... In Batman, look, Batman v Superman has so much ridiculous, weird. I don't get like why Metropolis and Gotham City are right across the bay, bay from each other. Like, like who thought that was a good idea? Like, here's the thing: I've always thought of, to me, Gotham City was Chicago, and all of all of the gangs, you know, Al Capone, all of the the, the thugs, they yeah. all came from the Chicago mobs and all that. And then Superman lived in sure. New York City. So in the DC universe, to me, that was how I always – they were not across the bay because once you do that, you're like, are you telling me that Superman never heard of Bruce Wayne? Like Bruce Wayne shows up at Lex Luthor's party and and he actually goes, hey, who's that? Oh, that's Bruce Wayne. What? He never was in a metropolitan – he was never in the Daily Planet? Like Bruce Wayne never showed up? Right, never on TV – Exactly. Absolutely. I mean when when, when something like that happens, you as a a savvy filmgoer – are watching the movie going, wait, what? Like, here's... Oh, come on, man. How about... Well, here's what you do when you're making a movie. You want to prevent (laughs) your audience from going, wait, what? 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 That's not... I've been watching this movie and you're telling me this? 
So, well, there's even a more basic, there's even a more basic one of that when he's trying to, when Bruce Wayne is with all the servers and trying to hack into Luther's stuff and uh, Mercy catches him and is like, oh, Mr. Wayne, what are you doing down here in front of all the servers where all of our protected data is and stuff? Oh, I'm just looking for the bathroom. Oh, okay. And let me spin on my heel and walk away. No, no, no. I'm sorry. She's too high up in the hierarchy to not be like. Get out of there right now, Mr. Wayne, and I'm going to watch you leave because this is a restricted area. I am not, uh, you know, whatever. But just but it's a restricted area. So his his entire server farm is indeed next to the kitchen, and it's it's in a, next to a wall of glass. So you can look and go look at all these incredible servers. I mean, the film the film had all of this kind of weirdness in it. But however, I will say that the extended cut there's something Come about on. it. I, I watch it with all the minutia that's ridiculous. The, it does have this this epic quality to it. Now, now I I do enjoy watch. There's more Superman in it, but but it, it it's clearly it's like why do we have to put the death of Superman there? Why does Doomsday have to be in this movie? Why why, why does where does Wonder Woman come from? Why is Diana Prince flying coach on a commercial flight? <laughs> like it's so weird. Like to me, I'm, I'm like. Like, like, are you kidding me? Like, Diana Prince is is clearly she's been – she has to be one of the richest women. If she's in man's world now, she has had yes. to have bought all – she has to be one of the industrialists, one of the richest women on the planet. Why is she flying coach? And not only that – Especially her, since her, especially since World War One, as opposed to World War Two. I mean it's like, you know, 90 years of, of her existing among man's world. But well, go, on. So, go on. So here's the thing. Like, she just walks off the plane. Her <laughs> luggage is on the plane. Where does she get her Wonder Woman outfit from? I mean, I'm watching this. I'm like, you've shown me, you showed me an insert shot of Diana Prince on a, a commercial flight, and she decides to leave the commercial flight. And we all know that her baggage is on that flight. So where is her Wonder Woman outfit? Like, she's come, she's come to Metropolis to go to Luther's party to perhaps find whatever artifact she's finding. And Bruce Wayne's like, it's a fake. She's like, yes, the real one's hanging above whatever Sultan has it. And you're like, That's I'm right. like, I don't buy any of this. This is all just some convenient <laughs> screenwriter bullshit plot contrivance. You cannot give me this BS that, that, Oh, there's something going down in Metropolis. So I'm going to get off my commercial flight and and figure out a way to get downtown in my Wonder Woman outfit to take on whatever alien threat is there. I mean it it's just a weird movie. There's all these weird choices in it, but I love the feel of it. It it, it it's like a tone poem of epicness, the way I thought the DC universe was when I was like 8. I mean it 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 the tableaus, the the imagery and all like there's that scene where, where Superman apparently doesn't care about any criminal behavior on the goth, docks of Gotham, so he's just going to go after Batman to prove a point and have the Batmobile bounce off him and let whatever criminal underworld activity continue to go on. But, but there's something about all of that that just feels epic, even though it's all – Well, visually. Yeah, visually. You go visually. Ahead. Yeah, visually. Well, that's the thing. Visually, he's great. Well, another thing, and this is something that, that Rob Liefeld and I talked about a few weeks ago – Putting that Dark Knight Returns scene of Batman in the armor and Superman and them duking it out as they did, it loses all of its emotional impact because what made it great on the Frank Miller version is we had the then 40 years of this relationship culminating into this battle. Right. 
I mean, you know, readers had that. The way they're presenting it and to put it at the beginning of their relationship, it takes all the drama away. Because that is the drama of the two friends who really do love each other but are like, all right, I disagree with what you're doing and now I've got to stop you. As opposed to, I don't know who you are and I have to stop you. It's it's a poor man's Marvel confrontation rather than the operatic epic that, that Miller did. Oh, yeah. I mean, but that's what's funny is to me – there's a there's just a lack of understanding from yeah. the creators of this stuff. I mean, DC doesn't have a Kevin Feige. Kevin Feige produced was a was a working producer on 13 Marvel adaptations before the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And he right. saw what worked and he saw what didn't work. And and he was intimately involved, or maybe not so intimately involved, but he still knew. He's a very smart guy. He saw exactly what was wrong. And he was able to, after 13 movies, make a definite course correction and and create uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe we know and love, which even a film like Thor The Dark World that isn't that great, uh, it's still enjoyable. It's not steel or it's not Catwoman, you know, and, and, and it's, it's something that, that honors the material and the actors are great. Yes. And what Kevin Feige has done, I mean, people poo-poo it. It's funny because we now see the cinema version of what comic book lovers felt like in the 80s when there was a comic re- a superhero renaissance with whether it was Watchmen or Crisis on Infinite Earths or Marvels or uh, – uh, the the, yeah, all that. The shake sh- yeah. a shadow. I mean, all that yes. stuff that went on. People are like, oh, it's still you know, it's still comic books. Kevin Feige made comic book films. Nobody thinks of them as comic book movies anymore. They're just those movies, and yet still his feet. People say, well, he's just making movies about Captain America and the Thor and Tony Stark. You know how hard it is to make those movies good. And the fact that he can yeah. give us Ant-Man and give us Doctor Strange and give us yes. uh, the Avengers and give us Thor and Captain America and Civil War, whatever. The fact that I, I, I yeah. now have the vision. The vision. I was like, I've been I reading know. the vision my whole life. I'm like, I never, ever, ever in my entire life would ever have thought I would have seen the vision brought to screen so elegantly and awesomely as he was in Age of Ultron. No I mean – it, it's when he had the, the moment where he picks up Thor's hammer. I mean, it's it's like it's like and, and, and the end when he's confronting Ultron, and he, he does say, well, I was I was born yesterday. I mean, you're, you're watching yeah. something. There's so much care and thought and wit put into these movies. Well, even they could they could do the vision just being the vision and don't have to do the Scarlet Witch romance. And they obviously put it in Civil War. And yeah, no, what, the, what they've been able to do with the Vision in the two movies is just astounding in terms of how much character we've gotten from very brief scenes, but luckily over these two movies. And they they just layer these movies, too, with these characters. Meanwhile, DC is in this rush to throw all this shit against the wall. And it's like, you just, they, they, it, it's a bad product. I mean, it, it just, it, it's a bad execution. Well, the problem, again. Certainly compared to the layers of Marvel. The problem is you don't have a singular a single visionary at DC. You know, look, Jeff Johns, he's a very talented writer. He's not a movie producer. You know, he... he w- you know, he's had that same, but he has had that same path, or at least 
a bit of it like Feige, where he's worked on a lot of movies, and that was his path to comic books as well. Well, it's true. He worked for Richard Donner. With Donner, he did work for Richard Donner. You know, I'm a big fan of Jeff Johns. Like, I loved, I loved his Green Lantern run. And I, I, you know, I, I only met Jeff Johns twice in my life, and the first time I really, really liked him, and the second time he basically killed a project that should have happened in the room. Oh. I'll I'll tell you the story. I'll tell the story to you. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell <laughs> I'm gonna tell a Jeff John story that that uh, why I have animosity towards him. Oh, I'll tell you I'll tell you why. So I produced a movie called The Hills Run Red for Warner Premiere. Now Warner right. Premiere is their direct to video division, and it started out The Hills Run Red started out as a movie I was making through my DVD production company Ludovico Technique. I was making it okay. for $350,000. And Brian Singer said, why don't you make it at Warner Brothers? I'm like, oh, okay, I'll just knock on the door and say, hey, Brian Singer sent me. No, he goes, no, 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 seriously. Diane Nelson, who is now head of DC Entertainment, who yes, I adore, yes. she's fantastic. Brian called Diane Nelson, and I'd worked for Diane on Superman Returns doing videos and corporate partnership videos and things like that. So she knew me. Brian said, okay. Rob Burnett wants to come see you. And I met with her, and Dave Parker and I brought this proof of concept, this trailer we'd made, and the script we'd done for Hills Run Red, and Diane Nelson, we, the movie was greenlit, and we made it. And I was able to go to Bulgaria, where we shot it, and, you know, it is, it is what it is, but it, it went from being a $350,000 movie to a $4 million movie with Joel Silver as our executive producer. So, uh, again, wow. okay. this was an epic win for me. Because it was a project that I originated. And it got okay. made at a studio. I took an independent movie that I was going to make. And yeah. it was a huge – that's why people go, well, free, you peaked with Free Enterprise. I'm like, actually, you know what? Hills Run Red was a huge victory for me. But anyway. So. Okay. The 25th anniversary of Sandman was coming. And, of course, I had done a lot of DVD documentaries. And I, I was friends with Neil Gaiman. And there was a Sandman mention in, in Free Enterprise, and I had been friendly with him, and we were on a panel together once, and you know we chatted. And I had contacted Neil Gaiman, and I said, listen, I know you're going to do Sandman Overture, which was the 25th anniversary Sandman story. And I said, I mm-hmm. would love to do a documentary about Sandman and about the effect of Sandman. And I, I basically said to him, I go, hot topic – I have a theory that Hot Topic would not exist without the Sandman. And that, that, that the character of Death brought so many girls into comic book reading. And, Absolutely. And, you know, the Vertigo, all the Vertigo series and, and everything that, that, that came away from Sandman and, and how it, it, it inspired so many things. J.O. Bars, I mean, The Crow... So much came out of out of out of what he yeah. did with the Sandman, and I wanted to do this yeah. documentary about. Um, I would would cover the creation of Sandman Overture, so it'd be a, a collection of of interviews with Neil Gaiman talking about writing Sandman Overture and what it was like to create that character, and how I've always believed that the Sandman's my favorite comic series of all time, is about the That's act cool. of storytelling itself. So, so I had this idea and I contacted Neil Gaiman and he was down. So I called Diane, who is now head of DC Entertainment. I said, Diane, I'd love to come in and pitch this idea if you guys are interested. Now, this was only to gauge interest. 
I had not, to be fair, I had not written a whole proposal. I just wanted to find out, is it even worth my time? Could I even go down this road? Sure. So I went in and, and I met with Diane and she had had Jeff Johns come into this meeting. And I, I only met Jeff Johns once. We had had dinner at Musso and Frank's years before with a, okay. a friend of ours, mutual friend named Jason Pritchett. And I pitched this idea. And uh, Diane liked it, but Jeff Johns killed it in the room. He goes, your idea seems a little unformed. And I said, well, you know, I'm just here to gauge interest. I mean, I've got Neil Gaiman wants to do it. And anyone who's made a documentary, first of all, I don't think I needed to. I made a three-hour documentary on the making of Superman Returns. I did X-Men documentaries, Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings. My documentary work spoke for itself. I mean, yeah, it, as sure. far as it goes, it was pretty A-list. Yes. And, and so I, I was like, look, I really want to do this. It's a passion project of mine. And, and Jeff Johns, just, he just killed it in the room. He goes, well, this idea is a little unformed. And I, I looked at him and I, I was like, I, I really didn't understand it, but it made me. And I, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, dude, I have absolute additions of, of – work that you've done. I've got your Teen Titans omnibus, your JSA omnibuses. I, I sure. love your comic work. But the meeting was not about that. I didn't, you know, suck as creative dick for, before going in there. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that I was supposed to or even that I had to do that. I'm like, I've already produced a movie for Diane Nelson. So yeah. I'm coming in and I have Neil Gaiman on board. And he killed it in the room. Yeah. And, and And what was funny was the twenty. It was supposed to be a twenty-fifth anniversary celebration of the Sandman. Well, the twentieth anniversary came. The twenty-fifth anniversary came and went, and there was no documentary celebrating. No. And no. there's subsequently been a, a documentary made that I haven't seen about the Sandman, but uh, but it could have happened. And and the funny sure. thing is, if Jeff Johns, there was no reason to not say move forward. I mean, what year was this specifically? Do you remember? This would have been. It was when I was working on Star Trek. Um, I want to say eighty-seven. So what is it? Two thousand twelve was nineteen eighty-seven. Okay. So it's two thousand twelve. Yeah. Okay, because I remember. You know, they did their Secret Origins that celebrated DC's seventy-fifth anniversary. Yeah, this was, was whatever. I mean, Overture maybe it was maybe it was later, two thousand thirteen. I'm not sure. Okay. It was, it was. Well, and again, and also they made the one about the villains that Resident Evil. Yeah, right. Exactly. I think that's no, that wasn't called, but it's something necessary evil. Necessary yeah, but evil. and what I what I so, wanted to do was was like as anyone knows, as any good documentarian knows, you can't define what your documentary is going to be because it's shaped by the interviews you get. It's shaped by the absolutely. stories that you uh, acquire. And and the yes, funny thing, absolutely. the funny thing was, is I wasn't even asking for a budget. I would have started this on my own. You know, it was my own. It was my own dime, and it was it was going to be. Um, and, and it was it was interesting because look, I understand. And to be fair, to be quite quite honest, they didn't know. And Diane told me this. She said, "We don't know what we're going to do with the Sandman because there was talks. Obviously, there's always been talks about making a Sandman movie. And and of course, what I wanted." What was I don't think I did did a uh, I didn't do a good good job explaining. I said, look, this is not about that. 
this is a celebration of the 25th anniversary of this amazing character and this amazing comic book that led to all of these things. And I wanted to right. do a uh, uh, thing about the cultural ramifications of the Sandman, how Neil Gaiman's career, you know, Coraline was made and how Nevermore yes. was made or Neverwhere was made. And, and he had written books and all this. Like it would have been a documentary about him as a person, as a storyteller, and also the overarching idea of what do stories mean to culture and society? And, and it was that kind of thing. And that's what I really wanted to do. And sure. it would have been cool. You know, and, and just like Axanar would have been really cool. And and the funny thing is, at the end of the day, would the world be better off if these things were made? Like when I tried to make Free Enterprise 2, we were two, <laughs> two days away from principal photography and we lost our money. The, the frustrating thing about all of these things is I already know that what I'm going to make is going to be either good to great. Somewhere in there. And I know that the world will be better off if these things that I wanted to make – maybe it's an arrogant thing for me to say. But if I had made my 25th anniversary of Sandman documentary, it would have been cool. It would have been good. It would have resonated. It would have touched people. And it would have got more people perhaps reading Sandman and finding all of that great work that Neil Gaiman has made. And it would have honored – Vertigo, it would have honored you know, what Karen Berger did and what Jeanette Kana did sure. back in the 80s when the Vertigo label was started. And it, it yep. would have been something that would have honored everyone's contribution. And yet it was killed in the room. No, I can appreciate that. I, uh, and, yeah, and, and, and what I was funny was it was killed by that. somebody <laughs> whose work I really loved. Sure. And and I would hope I'd be like, you know, man, I, I wanted Jeff Johns to dig it. And I, sure. I, I didn't know he was going to be in the room. Diane told me he would. And then that was it. You know, that was the end. Oh, and by the way, what was really what was really interesting is, you know, I got an email the next day from Diane. She's like, listen, I, I don't want you to talk about this anymore. And please don't talk to Neil Gaiman anymore about this. I'm like, OK, I understand. And, you know, to this day, I love Diane, and she was cool. She let me come in. She didn't have to. She let me come sure. in and have that meeting. It was a good meeting, and she's still, to this day, we're friends. We talk. We chat on Facebook or whatever. And I think what she's done with DC, it's it's awesome, and I wish her all the success in the world. And I'm sure we'll work together again. But this particular, you know, that's that's what happens in Hollywood. You go into the room sure. and you you have something and and it was funny we weren't even talking about money, it was just the idea and you know sour grapes maybe on my part, but that's a true story. I understand and I and I can relate and I've had similar things that got lost in the room and people don't understand where you're coming from and but also uh, and to to get shut down by a guy whose work you really respect and if anything yeah you just think that you guys are probably on the same wavelength and that oh if anyone's going to get this jeff johns would obviously get this right and that's kind of that's no that's disappointing and you never know i mean i know that and it's not uh i'm not making excuses jeff hasn't been on the show for several years now but i know that again when i see him he's always friendly to me and um i know he's dealing with a million things you don't know what else was part of his day that made him right and, and you know you know what's, what's you know what's really funny though here here's what's really funny the first time i met jeff johns at this dinner he had yet to get he was like on the verge of being able to write teen titans 
and he I and he and I just had the geekiest Teen Titans discussion. Oh, yeah. And I thought of anybody, you know, of all of because I've always harbored a desire to write comics. I've never written one. I've, as a matter of fact, I people think I'm crazy, but I I have an idea that I've always wanted to pitch to Rob Liefeld, and I think that because I love Rob, I love Rob Liefeld. I I, uh, I I love him as a, a great person, guy. and and he's a guy that does what he does because he loves it so much. And Absolutely. and I mean, there's nobody that loves making comic books more. I mean, the guy's a great dad. I mean, and he puts up the shit that he gets. And and to me, it, it, it's 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 like, look, when he revolutionized comics at the time, his comic books. We're all about turning the pages and going, fuck yeah, dude, this rules. You know, that's yep. what it was. And and it was yep. somebody playing a, a, a great heavy metal guitar lick for 24 pages. And and I'm like, there's a, play, there's a place <laughs> for that. You know, there is sure. a place for that. Rob Liefeld just wanted to do things that were kick-ass. And, and yet, you know, what's happened to him and the way he gets pilloried in the internet or whatever, it's like... Are you kidding me? I mean, look, he's been laughing all the way to the bank, but he still cares. You know, he, he, he he'll, he'll Absolutely. come back and go, yeah, that drawing of Captain America. Eh, they told me not to put that out, but perhaps he'll he'll even admit it. That's why he's one of the funniest, most self-effacing guys ever. I agree. I love talking well, he's, to him. He's I just the best. and He's not afraid to speak his mind, and like you said, he, he – Believes in what he does. He's like he's a home run hitter. He always aims for the fences with every swing. Yeah, every swing he wants. Yeah, to and it, it's like who wouldn't want to work with a guy like that? Sure. You know, and 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 I think that at the end of the day, it's it, it what it comes down to is that we have such a finite amount of time on this planet that sure. wouldn't it be better <laughs> to just make cool stuff? <laughs> like like that's. Whether I'm working on a documentary or working on a film, I try and make everything as good as it can be. I never half-ass it. I'll always push the envelope and try and make – no matter what I work on. Like the first movie I ever edited, I was the additional editor because the first cut was terrible, was a movie called Arcade for Full Moon. And and Peter Billingsley from – Christmas story. He and I were the, yes. we were the re we re edited arcade and we spent six months. Oh wow! Yeah, you know, we spent six months on it because he was actually in it, and and we <laughs> busted our asses and we never thought, oh, this piece of shit. You know, we're gonna no, we're like, this is our first movie that we ever edited. We're gonna try and make this the best thing we can make it, and it was actually it was ninety three and we, it was nominated for a best direct to video release of the year, and we took Holy we shit. took That's a awesome. movie that was people thought was. They told us it was unwatchable, and when we finished it, we were told, "Well, this is mediocre, but it's it's you know we can release it." And I thought to myself, "I am damn proud of this mediocrity." We went from unwatchable <laughs> to mediocre, and damn it, I'm proud. And then we were nominated for an award, you know. And and it's funny in the in the final That's film, uh, I believe the the if I remember correctly, the the editor is credited as Miles Winton. And Miles Winton was the name of the dog of the original editor. He wouldn't put his name on the movie. <laughs> so Peter and I are, are credited in the end as additional editors, even though we rebuilt that movie from scratch. We did every, everything in that film. There's not one. Wow. And who, the guy who wrote it, David Goyer. <laughs> oh, wow. There you go. Exactly. Jesus So Christ. you never know. And also Jeff Johns. 
Jeff John's collaborator, of yeah, course, as well. Of course. And and that's what's so funny. Yeah. I mean, you know, you think about you think about your career and your life and I, I just I, I I have maintained that that through my career in Hollywood, people have asked me about it. I go, I have maintained a sense of bemusement. That's that's the word that I've used. My entire career, life in general. If you go through life with a sense of bemusement, just be bemused by everything. Don't get horrified. Don't get angry. Just be bemused <laughs> because sometimes it's going to be great and sometimes it's not. But if all of it bemuses you, then you'll get through the day. <laughs> I hear you, man. Yeah, yeah. No, I, that's a good way to look because you're right. I mean, the entertainment world is all about ups and downs. It is. And, and you know, totally peaks and peaks and valleys and uh, speaking from a valley uh, currently in my radio broadcasting career, I uh, I understand, and you're right about that. You got it. You've got to just push ahead and and try not to take it personally, and and move forward. Keep moving forward. And it really, as a working class editor as you are and stuff, I'm I'm you know know that you you seem to get it, and that's likely why you survive and endure and and keep moving forward with each project. Oh yeah, so, and you, you you know you never know. I mean, some some days you're. Absolutely. Directing femme fatales for you know HBO and Cinemax, and there's all kinds of beautiful girls you're hanging out with. You're going to Spain to film sure. festivals, and then one day you're shooting behind the scenes on Leah Thompson's directorial debut, and and nobody would could care less if you're there or not. You know, it's the kind of thing where where you can't you can't let it. And, and then there's acts in our people telling you that oh, Burnett, you you're just a drunk and you peaked with Free Enterprise. I'm like, really, dude. Really? I mean, okay, if that's what you think, but whatever. I mean, it's funny. The Axnar haters call me like Beer 30, which I don't even know what that means. It, it's, I don't know why they beer 30. You know, they, they, they go and they take pictures from my Instagram feed because I'm always taking funny photos with alcoholic beverages. But they act like, well, you know, and I'm like, wow, that's okay. If that's how you want to play it, that's fine. But what's interesting when, when people – they don't know – the 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 heartache and the pain and and when Axonar was was when we were sued, it was really like it was like when Free Enterprise Two went down. There was a lot of people that spent a lot of time and a lot of money uh, trying to make a great film, and then we get sued and all of that. Then suddenly, none of that is remembered. You know, we're public enemy number one all of a sudden for whatever reason. And, it's 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 a shame because everybody that worked on the Axnar film did incredible work, incredible work, and it's too Absolutely, bad that man. that the movie itself, the feature, because it it would have been epic, or as Core the Klingon said, the first Klingon we ever met in uh, Star Trek the original series in the first season episode, Errand of Mercy said, when the Organians put an end <laughs> to the Klingon war, he said, Core said. But it would have been glorious. <laughs> That's kind of how action is. If, if anybody asks me, I, I will I will point them to core. John Colicos, you know, came back as Baltar Indeed. in the original Galactica. Yes, he was the first. Absolutely, and and, and core himself uh, in the later. Detroit yes, he did. Episodes, he came core. back and he, and he played core again. But but that's 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 what Axnar to me is always going to be. It's always going to be core's voice saying. It would have been glorious. <laughs> you know, based on what I've heard on the Axonar podcast, uh, it sounds like there are some ancillary projects that will come of 
the uh, the battles that you know, Alex. Uh, is it Alex? Yeah, it's Alex. Alex. I don't it's A L E C. Alex. Alex, Alex Peters. Sorry, Alex, if you're listening. No, people but, always uh, just, even I, you know, you know you, it's just it rolls off. Alex rolls off the tongue. Yeah. But, but no, you know, I think Absolutely, we've man. talked about doing a radio drama of the script and, and all that. But that'd but, be great. But it would be. I and mean, they don't seem to have any. They don't seem to have any conditions. I noticed that right away when the fan film things were put up. And there've been some wonderful audio dramas of uh, Star Star Trek. Material. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely. I mean, I think that would be. I, I grew up li- listening to the the CBS Radio Mystery Theater that was hosted by. Me too, man. I lo- every oh, night at ten oh seven. E.G. Marshall. Yep. The CBS Radio <laughs> Mystery Theater presents, and then the door would open, and it would go there, <laughs> door. and then the music would be, <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Those are, you can find them online, folks. Archive.org has, uh, like, several scenes. Oh, and you know what's, you know what's great about theater. those is they used all of the music from the Twilight Zone because it was, it was the C- CBS CBS had the Twilight Zone. Oh, that's so. The actual wow. underscore for all of the CBS Radio Mystery Theater was music that was written originally for the Twilight Zone. That's it's, fantastic! I didn't oh my god, that. it, that's amazing. I mean, it was. I remember when I was a kid. I it was on at ten oh seven every night in Seattle. I listened to it every night. Me too. Yeah, in Chicago as well. And there were some that were so scary. And when E.G. Oh, yeah. e. Marshall's voice was so scary. And I remember there was an episode. All I remember about the episode was the title, which was Charnel House. And I'm like, what's a charnel house? You know, I, and I looked it up as a kid, like where bones were. It was horrifying. I'm like, I don't even. That's terrifying. It, that show scared the crap out of me. Me Some too, of the episodes. Fred were... Gwynn used to be on it all the time from uh, the judge, of course, from my cousin's Vinny and, and Herman Munster, of course. But a great audio actor and everything. He had a great voice, and so many radio vets that were still alive oh. would show up and do these character oh, parts. Was... And Mason Adams used to be on everything. That was another all character the time. Actor that you'd always hear. You know, and there was there was who was the woman? There was a woman. There was an actress that was on like every episode. Not like Cicely Tyson, but maybe it was somebody like that. Well, I know because later Tammy Grimes that's, took over the hosting, and I that's know, maybe it was Tammy Grimes. Who, maybe it was Tammy Grimes because she had a and she had a British voice, and she yeah. When like the last year or two, E.G. Marshall left, and it was Tammy Grimes. The guy who produced that show, Hyman Brown, had the classic old time radio show Inner Sanctum that also had a creaking door opening, right? Door. And he just he really became this master of audio at the worst possible time as television was happening. So he really learned his radio drama craft, and he produced shows for Voices of America, the the you know worldwide propaganda arm of uh, the U.S. government, and just told like historic American stories, and always was just creating these like great radio shows on a shoestring budget, and just and finding these amazing sponsors, and that's why God uh, Radio Mystery Theater ran like eight years. Oh, on on CBS. Yeah, radio. it was the greatest thing ever. I, oh yeah, man! No, I, I loved. <laughs> I, I mean, again, it just. I grew up as a kid who just loved stories, and it was funny because after yeah. it was over, um, there was like a, a talk show, you know, like a call-in talk show. Oh, locally, yeah, okay. locally, after, and after I used to call was... in. Like my sometime between, <laughs> I started listening to the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. My parents got my sister and I a phone line, our own phone line. This was a big deal. Okay, and so I had my sure. own phone in my room, so. I was probably like, I want to say 11 or 12. And I was like, would, let's talk about children watching violent films. And I would call in and be like the kid. They would let me on. 
And I, you know, <laughs> I was on our local <laughs> Seattle affiliate complaining about why are you censoring? You know, I'm a kid and I can watch a Clockwork Orange and it's okay. And I understand and I get what Stanley Kubrick was trying to get. I mean, the idea of free will and, you know, it's better to be able to choose awesome. the idea of evil, even if, you know, we have to have free will. You can't just be conditioned to be good all the time. And, you know, it's just, it was, that was, I was actually Hilarious. on an episode going on about Clockwork Orange, which means I had to have been 13 because I, that was one of the, the first things that blew my mind. It's the first movie I ever watched back twice, back to back on video. I, it changed my life. Oh, that's cool. But, that's hilarious. Yeah. Now, do you remember? Do you here? I got a deep cut for you, uh, for, and I'm sure you're you're well aware of it. Uh, is it Ursula Le Guin's uh, Lay the? Oh my. Okay. Okay. GBH, uh, Let me just tell you yeah, about the Lay of Heaven. <laughs> All right. I I got my first VCR in 1980, and the one thing that I wanted to do when I had a VCR, you know, you want to tape TV shows, was I wanted to tape the Lay of Heaven. Because it was one of my favorite movies. It was I'd seen it a hundred times. Well, I wanted to see it a hundred times. Pardon me. Let me start again. <laughs> no problem. Let me start again. So, yeah, don't overthink it. No worries. So, you, the Lathe of Heaven. Let me tell you about the Lathe of Heaven. So, the Lathe of Heaven was one of the first movies I ever videotaped when I got my first VCR in 1980. <laughs> and I, I've probably seen that movie a hundred times. And what's interesting about that film, you know, Bruce Davidson is in it. And Bruce Davidson was, of course, Ben, you know, Willard. And yes. and he was in those films. And he's had a he's had a really interesting, eclectic career. And Kevin Conway. Oh, my God. Yeah. Great character. Kevin, Kevin Conway, Conway, who Jesus, played uh, Kalis on Deep Space Nine. Yes. You know, and then, of course, there's Margaret Avery, who played Heather Lelosh from... The, she's the social worker who's been sent to oversee Dr. Haber's work in the film. Margaret Avery played Suge Avery. This is where I got messed up. Played Suge Avery in The Color Purple. Wow. We, That's insane. I got to rewatch Color Purple now. Look we it. cast her as the Federation president in Axanar. That's insane. Wow, that's cool. She's, she's um... 71 years old. She was 71. And, and by the way, we had this amazing backstory for her. And Alec had bought a costume that she was going to wear that was this really cool sort of – it was like this vaguely African – like there were African animals. It was this really cool high-necked. It had like a narrow kind of a – it was very interesting, really cool uniform that she was going to wear. It wasn't a uniform. It was a, it was a dress, but it was really interesting, really cool that she was going to wear an Axnar and she was going to be the Federation president. And she gives a speech at the, the beginning of the film that I really wanted her to do. And she was offered to us by our casting director. And when she brought up her name, I was like, Margaret Avery, Margaret Avery was in the late of heaven. We have to have her. <laughs> and and my casting director, who by the way cast Boogie Nights, Christine Sheeks, oh, she wow. she did not understand why it was that I was so excited about this actress, and I had to explain to her why. But that's the, awesome. the late of heaven is She's... still you know it's it's really sad because oh and here's something else. So I worked on Free Willy. The movie Free Willy. I didn't know that. Worked on Free Willy. Okay. It, it's not on my IMDb because 
I was the producer's assistant and I, I didn't get a credit because I was working at the studio. You know, I was already on staff at Warner Brothers in feature production. So I, but I worked on the film. The director of photography of Free Willy is Robbie Greenberg, who shot The Lathe of Heaven. And when he would come into the office, I, all I did was ask him to tell me Lathe of Heaven stories. And he just thought that was hilarious. Because, because you know, The Lathe of Heaven was a, um, it was a PBS film. And PBS was going to make uh, a series of science fiction films. And they only made like two. That was the first. I don't even what, remember. What, what was the other one they made? I, you know, yeah, I was going to say. I, I know don't that. know. I don't know. I don't remember what it okay. was. But I seem to remember they did make another, another film. But The Lathe of Heaven was, I mean, and, and what's really sad about that is The Lathe of Heaven was released on DVD because they, the only master that existed of the film was like a three-quarter inch video master, which resolution was sure, terrible. because it was made for television. Yeah it was, and, yeah, it was made for television. And so they apparently, uh, no one knew where the negative was. I'd loved, somebody must have that negative somewhere. One of the great banes of my life is one day someone's going to find the, the negative for Lathe of Heaven and not know what it, it is and probably throw it away just to make room or something. Oh, God. The, you know, I found it uh, on the bootleg circuit at conventions, and I'm sure someone recorded it off a of TV. Yeah, I mean, it's it's but, been released uh, on DVD, but they the in the in the original version... Oh, they did release yeah, it. Yeah, they did. A small company. It's very hard to find, but it's on DVD, and they, but they replaced the Beatles song with a little help from my friends. Yes, I remember it, that. That was a key moment of the movie. Yeah, right? and now they just have a sound-alike. You know, they had to re-record it, which... Kind of uh, sucks, but what are you going to do? Yeah. No, you know, and they did that with Wise Guy, the television show, because the DVD release. And I'm sure to clear the original Moody Blues, Nights in White Satin. Not, not uh, only did they not clear that, but the entire Dead Dog Records storyline with Paul Winfield yes. and all that is not on DVD because they couldn't clear all the music. The Glenn Fry ep- episodes. Oh really? Because yeah, um, that's interesting. Because I thought I got all the no. Box if you have the box set, that included it does dead not dog. have the Dead Dog Records storyline on it. Oh my God, Debbie Harry and and Tim Curry yep. and and like you said, Glenn. Fry. It's not. It's not on the box because I loved Wise Guy. Me too, man. Me too. John Shulian, one of the principal. I think he was even the showrunner in the later seasons and stuff. And he did Midnight Caller as well. He was a Chicago a newspaper sports writer and uh, boxing was his wheelhouse and I'm a huge boxing fan and I used to read his boxing columns in the 70s and, and early 80s before he went out to Hollywood and uh, no he became you know he was I think one of uh, Canel's go-to guys on Wise Guy and everything no I love Wise oh, Guy. It, you know show. it's so you know they were, they were trying to do a reboot of it a couple of years ago and it didn't happen I didn't know that I remember the TV movie reunion movie that they all made and I was surprised that Ken Wall was able to make it, but right. Ahead. I mean, it was it was uh, again. John, it's so great to see Jonathan Banks on Breaking Bad yes. and Better Call Saul because it, it's oh, like yeah. I loved you, you know Jonathan Banks was was Victor Maitland's henchman in Beverly Hills Cop. Yes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I I pointed that out to a friend as well because Wise Guy is now on in the afternoons on Me TV. Oh, it's and a friend was over and I'm like Jonathan Banks, and he's like, oh yeah, Better Call Saul. I'm like. Oh, dude, Beverly Hills Cop, come on. He's, uh, it was so, it was funny because Wise Guy was like the first, 
modern serialized story. Of course, it was where Kevin Spacey had his big break. The first season yes, after Mel the Prophet. Sonny Steelgrave arc, it was the Mel Him and Joan Severance. Yeah, the Mel Prophet arc. I mean, by the way, I'm friends with Joan Severance on Facebook, and she's like a raging Republican, a raging conservative oh, Republican. That's so disappointing. Uh, and by the way, I think she might have defriended me because <laughs> I haven't seen any posts from her in a while. I should go look. But Oh, man, that really sucks because, yeah, that's that's one of, like – our generation's 80s uh, massive crushes along with Leah Thompson was, my God, Joan Severance. Oh, my God. I mean, Joan Severance was so – how sexy was she in that story arc? Absolutely. Well, and also, thank God, lots of gratuitous nudity from Joan Severance over – Oh, absolutely. It's like, Joan, we need you naked. Like okay. Lake Consequence <laughs> well, we or whatever. That stuff. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Salmon King, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you know. Well, that's – you know, Audie England from Free Enterprise was in Delta Venus. And the Aeneas Nin. I haven't seen Delta oh, Venus. Well, you All should, right, there you <laughs> let me re- let me recommend Delta Venus to you highly. <laughs> you know, right. it's funny because because know. Audie England married Peter Lenkoff, who is a producer on Hawaii Five O, right now. But okay. but he also wrote Demolition Man, <laughs> and it just I, it just tickles me that Audie England, the the geek fantasy girl in Free Enterprise. Married the writer of Demolition Man. <laughs> that is really awesome. Absolutely, you know, and yeah, she's great in Free Enterprise and stuff. That's, uh, that's like also uh, Teen Wolf. I've had Jeff Loeb on the show many times, and you know, Jeff wrote uh, co-wrote right the original, the, the the good one with Michael. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I'm like, whatever happened to Boof? And he's like, oh yeah, she married a studio executive. He goes, he goes, that's hilarious. I just had dinner with her last month. I'm like, oh. You know what's really funny? The first people <laughs> that gave me my first job in the motion picture industry was the guys who produced Teen Wolf. Um, oh, wow. Uh, Scott Rosenfeld, and Mark Levinson. They went on to they they had produced uh, Mystic Pizza, which was Julia Roberts' breakthrough movie. role. And then they also executive produced Home Alone. Oh, and wow. Jesus. they hired me out of a class at USC, which was pretty cool. That's insane. Yeah. That's great. I, yeah, Jeff, uh, I always love talking about Jeff's 80s screenwriting adventures. And, you know, like Burglar initially was going to be a Bruce Willis movie and then became a Whoopi right. movie and stuff. So things like that. It's yeah, it's amazing, man. I you know, and again, because we're at two and a half hours now. I I, I we, we can wrap up if you want, or I'd, I'd be uh, wouldn't mind talking about some other TV. Options. Sure, I mean if you've got it's totally up sure, to why not? Ask. I, I feel like we've been just rambling. Ask me a question, I'll I'll answer it. No, they're fun. That's hey, man. No, you you know as I, I can't believe heard my Bendis tapes. You know, they they go off into these kind of weird directions. It's all good, man. Well, you know, you asked me earlier what I'm looking forward to this year. I mean, look, I, I can't yeah. wait to see Wonder Woman. I, I think Wonder Woman has the greatest theme song ever. I mean, the movie theme song, that guitar riff. It's yes. great. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. I can't wait to see that. I can't wait to see Guardians 2. I can't wait to see, sure. of course, Justice League is the culmination of a childhood fantasy. I mean, I was I was Agreed. a DC now, guy when I was a kid. I loved the Justice League. But, I'm interested, though, because on Collider Heroes, and I have to confess, there are times when I can't listen because you guys get so much inside dope that I feel like the movie's being spoiled. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I don't want to know this. I want to go in with more, more preconceived notions. And I, you know, I did the same thing with Rogue One. It's like I don't even want to read any articles leading up to it or anything. But what is your feeling based on what you guys have discussed and things you've learned from 
your correspondents that have been on set and things like that. What what is the what is your feeling about uh, the coming Justice League movie? Well, you know, I don't I don't know much about it because I didn't make that trip over. I didn't you know see. Mm-hmm. I I I I think it's going to be great because. You know, I think they made a minor course correction or a major course correction after Batman v Superman. Um, I think that Zack Snyder, you know, as a visualist, he really he's so influenced by Alex Ross and he's so influenced by what uh, whatever it is he's trying to emulate, like, you know, Watchmen. Oh, yeah. And I think I think we're going to definitely get a, a great looking film. And the idea that the antagonist is Steppenwolf. You know that that Syrian Hines is playing Steppenwolf. You know from which means they have to have apocalypse and they have to have allusions to Darkseid if he's not in the movie. Right. You know he needs to be. I, I mean I never thought I would see. We're we're gonna see Thanos and perhaps Darkseid gotcha. in the same year. Or in the oh, same... you know that. Yeah. I mean you. I, that's either a red herring or it's. Uh... Uh-huh. Or absolutely, the path leads to Dark Side. If not in this movie, then well, I mean, it had, the, the, maybe we'll, it, we'll get a little cameo at the end or something. Well, it was so funny. I mean, when you look at Batman v Superman, you you're, you're watching the giant magma streams coming out of the Earth the same way they do on Apocalypse, and you've got the Omega yep, and symbol. You know, you no one would understand and the parademons that. and everything. You're, you're like, yeah, why would you even, sure. as a filmmaker, why would you even put that in a film in a movie? No one even knows what it is. You know, you're like, oh, you're looking at Apocalypse and you're looking at all this stuff. It's so crazy, but I can't wait to see it. You know, I can't wait to see Guardians. I can't wait to see Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, I'm excited for Thor Ragnarok because I have a feeling it's going to have a little Planet Hulk in it. Yeah, and it sounds... with. I mean, obviously you've got Hulk in the Gladiator outfit and stuff, so it's like, all right, something I mean, it sounds... It's crazy. The fact that they're doing Ragnarok, I mean... The fact that we're getting yes. this stuff, it's just nuts, but in a good way. Oh, I yeah. Yeah, and then I agree in a good way. All right, TV-wise, because honestly, I, all the missteps of DC movie-wise, I think they're killing it on TV. They're killing and it. And again, yeah, and, and those guys are clearly Jeff John's lieutenants. I know that uh, Andrew... Um, uh, Creasefield used to, uh, you know, he used to, or Kreisberg used to um, write the Green Arrow comic book with my buddy Mike Norton drawing it for him and stuff. And um, Berlanti and, and, and certainly Mark Guggenheim has been a great comic book writer. I mean, these guys clearly respect, respect the material, find, found new ways to represent it. And yeah, for every misstep in movies, again, I mean, God, Monell on Supergirl. Whoever thought Monell would. Uh, you know, and the Dominator. He's hilarious. I He's mean, hilarious. Invasion yes. Yeah, the crossover like, was good. Very really? good. Yes, it was. I, I can't look. I can't. I can't believe well, it was, what we're it getting. It's all kind of amazing to me, and yeah. I really, I really am loving it. So I can't. You know, I can't fault what's going on. I mean, it really is. It really is a golden age of of superheroes on TV. I never thought watching Lois and Clark with Dean Cain. That you know, <laughs> yeah, we would ever come to this to this point. I never thought I would see it yep, in my or, lifetime, but or the, even the even the Bill Bixby Hulk. You know, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, we've had we've had moments where we've had a show, and you're actually Lois and Clark's an even better example because it lasted like five seasons or whatever. Uh, you know, so that was good. And uh, no, it's it's amazing, and that's the thing. I 
you know, there was a while where people were like, oh, you know, oversaturation and stuff. I'm like, no, I just think this stuff is still finding its footing. And with movies like Ant-Man and, and also Doctor Strange and some of these other, and certainly Deadpool, this is something with Liefeld and I talked about, they're finally figuring out uh, different ways around the genre to tell other movie stories within the template of a superhero movie. Just like, and I, my example was the Western. The Western did the same thing. We got, you know, the the usual kind of meat and potatoes Westerns for a couple decades before, you know, John Ford really, you know, stretched his muscles and everything and started introducing complex characters in Westerns. Oh, no, I, you know, absolutely. And, and, and you go and back you know. and you look at something like Unforgiven. Exactly. You know, which is, Unforgiven is, I, I did not grow up, perhaps sacrilegiously, I did not grow up a fan of Westerns. I didn't, I didn't enjoy them until later in life when I discovered uh, Sergio Leone, Be- because to me so many sure. westerns looked so phony. You know, they were so stage bound. Sure. And absolutely, you know, absolutely. it wasn't until I remember I had a revelation one morning when I had been partying with some friends and I I was staying at a friend's house in, in West LA, my first year at USC, and The Searchers was on. And I had never seen Love The it. Searchers. You know, Jeffrey Hunter's in it. And I wa- yes. I started watching it. I'm like, this is freaking great. You know, <laughs> I loved it so much. And I yeah. couldn't believe how great it was. And I, I just, then I sort of became obsessed with Westerns. Which was kind of a, a funny awesome. thing to, it was The Searchers that did it. <laughs> Well, and that's well, what a great visual movie to start with. And then you appreciate the Bud, the Bud Boddicker movies and uh, Anthony Mann and James Stewart. I mean, there's some amazing filmmakers that, again, took that Western template and built all these interesting ideas out of it, either through the need of having a more interesting story because their poverty row made it, made movies and they didn't have much in terms of you know being able to shoot on expansive locations. So they had to concentrate more on character and story and stuff. And, of course, the blacklisted writers like Trumbo and uh, people like that that had to slum it in uh, in the Western uh, genre while it was, you know, all over the place. So that's the thing. I really think it's like as much as some people are like we're getting too much product, it might slow down a little bit. But I don't think it, I don't think the superhero films are going to go. Well, away. no. And, you know, it's funny because lawyer shows haven't gone away and cop stories are still exactly. as vibrant as ever. I mean, there's a training day series that's. Starting on television, and and it's it's I think, oh God, the, really? The great nice. thing about what I what I find really interesting about superhero stories is, it goes back to westerns and and cop shows. There are knights, you know, the knights in shining armor, that yes, they're just another definitely. variation of, of the Arthurian mythos. And You're right about that. And Absolutely. I think that um, you know, we all we all want heroes. We all want to believe there's something primal. You know, when we're children, we see our parents as our heroes, you know, our mothers and our fathers. And, and, and we want to believe sure. that those heroes will carry on and, and help us and save us, you know. I'm with you. Unless yeah, you're Rorschach, not. which you won't save us. You'll just say no. <laughs> no, I'm not going to save you. <laughs> And I say no. Absolutely, man. And I have to say, I, I don't think I said last time we talked about free enterprise. My favorite, like, single moment 
is when uh, Shatner's talking about doing his six-hour Hamlet. Or Julius Caesar, excuse me, of course Julius Caesar. And he's, I know it sounds crazy, but he gets that great, determined, almost but blank look on his face. He's like, well, you know, to me, that's and it's just <laughs> that's it. That's the crux of the movie, you know. And 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 in Absolutely. a way, it, it, it in a way, I, I didn't mean for this to be the case, but it's sort of become the the my own life. You know, I've 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 stuck it out and. A lot of people leave LA after a certain amount of time. <laughs> I think I'm I think I'm a lifer. Sure, I'm sure. I'm in the asylum, you know. <laughs> I'm here and I, I keep <laughs> plugging away and, and uh I'm looking for that elusive breakthrough that that people have had, whether it's a movie like Monsters that which leads to their Godzilla or something. I mean, Free Enterprise was supposed to be that for me, but unfortunately it didn't you know, it was a little bit before its time. If Free Enterprise had come out in two thousand and one or three or something, maybe, maybe I would have been seen as more valuable. <laughs> no, I, you know. Well, first of all, you're you know you're not done. Yeah. Well, no, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, it's it's you, you know you don't. Yeah. What's funny is is I look at people like Ridley Scott directed his first movie when he was thirty nine, which was The Duelists. You know, and and. Yeah, I didn't. Really yeah, and now I mean, he was a great commercial director, but it's like you know when you're you're in this nowadays, especially in Hollywood, there's no age limit. You don't have to end. I mean, Clint Eastwood directed Sully, and he's 85 years old. You know, yep. and it's it. Yep. George Miller and Mad Max, and you know, 70 and everything, and clearly at the yeah. top of his. Game. And and it's just, you keep going, and and you just you never know what's what's going to happen and and when it's going to happen well and the democratization too of of these platforms and and the ability to you know maybe get the right gig on the right platform and everything i think is still very possible and you know no i i think that's that's excellent and again what's the what's the renee taylor joe uh, it's called tango shalom yeah tango shalom that's awesome i i, I believe i heard them talking about it on uh, gilbert gottfried Oh, they might have. I mean, they're there. It's so what's funny about it is it's you you just never know what happens to or what's going to happen with the things that you work on. You, you know, you just you, one day you're you're slaving away in a, in a room with another person for months at a time. And then the results, the fruits of your labor pay off. And suddenly you're you know, you've worked on something that becomes a gigantic hit or it becomes some cultural zeitgeist thing it's you just you just don't know sure you know and you you just keep going you keep working you try and create good work and you know i want to lead a life that that when i slide into home plate and my life is over uh, you know somebody says that i once heard they wanted to feel like they were sliding into home plate and they were like what a rush you know and and i think that that's that's if anything i can take away from my own life is that i've had a great time and I've I've worked on some really cool things. I've met a lot of my heroes, and none of them have disappointed me. Um, and I think that that's you know that's a great way to be. And I, you know, Absolutely, I get up every man. morning and I'm no, like, what's on. next? Kind of like Jed Bartlett in uh, West Wing. What's next? You know, it's you just yes. you you know you don't <laughs> give up. You don't you don't. And, and it's funny because I've always that's... said to people, I used to say to people when I was younger, you know, no matter how bad it gets. It can always get worse, and you should stick around and see how bad it can get. 
And, and, and I didn't ever <laughs> think that I would actually have to live through that, but maybe we are right now. <laughs> nah, well, yeah, well, clearly as far as, you know, the social scene and I, I share your view on, uh, our current president and his actions. And we're recording this the weekend of the airport, uh, nonsense. And it's just well, disgusting. Well, what's funny disturbing. is it's not like he, he, he made this executive order, but nobody called the airports. Like, like there was no, no one, there was no policy put in place to handle his, like, I thought, okay, he signed this executive order that would go into effect in six months or something when, when, when there was something that that people had actually had time to figure out, like, how are they going to process people? But, you know, it's like those, that family that landed in Philly from Damascus, they had their green cards, they had their visas and they were turned away and sent home. And it's like. That's appalling. I mean, it's it's yes. like they already yes. went through the process to be vetted, and 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 what's even yes. worse is, uh, what about Emirates? What about the United Arab Emirates? What about Turkey? What about uh, Hello Saudi right. Arabia? The only people that why have, these right? Why these seven countries and not these other countries that have had direct well, impacts on our that's level our, of security? Our president has business interests there, and it's of it's like. How how in a week, you know, you saw Obama leave office little more than a week ago, and now you've got this guy who's literally a pro- he's like he's profiteering from the presidency, and and what he's done with with the National Security Council, like getting rid of the Joint yes. Chiefs. I, I mean, it's it's idiotic. It's, it's insanity. Idiotic. Yes. Well, hopefully these financial interests will surface and there will be enough evidence to do something about it. Luckily, I think the levers of government are even putting the brakes on what's happened at the airports this weekend because there's no follow through. Now, that might be a temporary reprieve, but I also think that hopefully enough Republicans and also judges have the cool enough heads to say, you can't do it. That's that's too far of a reach. Or again, these these men in government are going to have to, you know, deal with their their side of the checks and balances, and have the guts to disagree with the president and say no. And I don't know what'll happen, but unfortunately, we're we're spectators, and it's all we can do is demonstrate and and see what we can do about uh, you know tipping the uh, tipping the side. Uh, right. I mean, I I, I but, just you know, hope that what the else can we do? That, you know, it's funny. So many people that voted for Trump, uh, he's working against their interests, and and I'm just. I hope they see that. I hope they're exactly. I hope so too. Well, also, you know, again, jobs. You know, we'll see. We'll see. You know, he's got. He's got to do these right. And look, I, I would love about. to see. I would and, love to and, see and, a know, New Deal program where uh, American infrastructure is rebuilt. And I would love to see people put to work. And yeah. And why not do that? And let's 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 put the people. Let's stop those coal miners are still able-bodied workers. Let's put them, you know, let's get them out of the mines and put right. them up into the sunshine and start concentrating on green energy and making them, them get them paid more money and not having them, you know, have black lung. <laughs> right. Have them work on roads, have them work on bridges and things and, and, you know, to use their skills in other ways and stuff. And no, I, I agree, man. I would love a full public works program to really attack the infrastructure. And, and, you know, again, 
you got all you got all the marbles on your side of the table. If you really want to do it, you can beyond uh, making yourself rich and your budget. Right. I mean, it, it like just that. seems so we'll obvious and shameless that he's doing these things. It's like, really, dude? Really? Well, yeah, I know, man. I know, and it's 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 demoralizing. I know, but again, that's why our, our all we can do is protest, do what we can for 2018, and like I said, hope hope for the best. And it seems like there might be some people on the right that agree and step up and say, no, that's I'm sorry, that's too right. far. We'll see. Bummer. All right, good downer to end on, Rob. You will like uh, listen. I, I really appreciate uh, all, hanging out with you. It's it's. I, I feel like uh, unfortunately Dude. we haven't been able to drink beer this whole time. Or no, I enjoyed the conversation. I love the tangents that we went on. And uh, stay in touch. I, I understand. And whatever happens with you and Axinar, I appreciate the work that you've done so far. And uh, regardless, you've got some really cool stuff coming up that. Uh, I would love to talk about it in the future, and also we'll be watching Star Trek Discovery. I can't, no, I can't wait. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll watch. <laughs> even look, I always go in uh, like with everything else. Any new Star Trek that comes out, I watch with bated breath, and I hope it's great. That's what I really hope yep. for is that it's going to be great. And 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 look, if Brian Fuller came up and and they truly are using his um, ideas as a jumping off point, tremendous. I uh, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. Me too, man. Well, uh, I'm sure uh, something will come up in the next few months. At the very least, maybe we'll do a, a midsummer review of uh, the movies that come out. Uh, Logan. Oh, and I mean, Wonder how Woman good does like Logan come out mid, You know, by midsummer. I quite agree. I can't. I'm, I'm I'm actually excited for that one. I, I love the fact. I mean, there there's a there's an, another like with Deadpool, another new take on the superhero genre. I mean, let's let's go on full on western. Totally. Uh, glad to see Mark Miller as uh, Old Man Logan seems to obviously is going to have a something I know. to do with the movie as well, or at least the flavor. The Which flavor is of it just tremendous. So, I mean, the fact that we're getting these things is astonishing to me. I completely agree. I'm uh, again. You and I remember when we get excited for the uh, challenge oh, of the superheroes uh, celebrity <laughs> roast. <laughs> but it was cool back then. <laughs> so I did. Absolutely, I did get to tell. Um, oh God, now I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Charlie Callis. I'm like, you know, man, whether you, I go, I don't know if you've ever seen a Gil Kane drawing of Sinestro, but right. you are Sinestro. And his eyes got so big and he's like, all right, there's my guy. Check it off the list. He's like, every city I play, there's at least one or two of you that come up and tell me about Sinestro. And I'm like, there you go. So, yeah, he came into our sports radio station. It was, I'm like, talking that's about great. <laughs> so, though, like I said, we're travelers, man. So, yes, continue I hope, the journey. I hope that uh, uh, keep it up. something valuable in this podcast. <laughs> Oh, no, we we had a blast, man. What are you talking about? No, it was great. Honestly, I appreciate the up update on Axanar. Continue your good work on Collider Heroes. Are you doing any other podcasts? And well, you, you know, I do I do the Axanar right podcast now. because, you know, I kind of I took it over and I figure it's important. I still feel an obligation to the donors. You know, we're still out there cool. trying to do something. And, and uh, I've done some documentary work that people are going to see about the the movie and it was interesting for the lawsuit i had to deliver an hour-long tape or tape i say tape an hour-long file of work that i had completed for the axonar feature visual effects work uh the opening title sequence that was being designed by a uk company i had to show what was been had been done there and it's an impressive uh bit of work and I'm hoping to put that on a disc. You know, we, we owe the donors this origins disc of all of 
uh, where did Axnar come from? And, um, and we've done a lot of cool stuff in that regard. And hopefully they'll see all of that. And that's something I'm still working on and will deliver because the donors are owed that disc. Some are. So, yeah, and that's I, awesome. And man. I do feel that that's you know, to keep my conscience clean, I'd like to make sure that they get that. That's excellent. You know, I, I donated 35 bucks. I don't know if I qualify for that. I'll get you one. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> oh, you're a good man. <laughs> I appreciate that. Hey, I put my money in that project because I believed in it. That's why I'm still talking about it. And honestly, I always appreciate your point of view as someone that's been involved with the production as much as you have. So so thank you. And truly, honestly, it's a, it's a great compliment to me that you like what I do. Oh, I appreciate it. No, it's great because okay. we have these rollicking conversations. Rob Meyer Burnett, really enjoyed that talk, and I'm looking forward to the next one. Thanks a lot for listening to today's Word Balloon. It was brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. We talked about the Star Trek product. How about uh, some of the other great deals happening uh, currently at InStock Trades? There's Alpha Flight by John Byrne, a big, uh, heavy, epic collection. The Omnibus hardcover is uh, 50% off, just $50 at InStock Trades. You can also get uh, the... Batman Detective, Volume 1, uh, James Tynan's uh, run, The Beginning of Rebirth with Eddie Barrows. It's The Rise of the Batman, and it is uh, 50% off, just $8.49. You can also get Scoopy Apocalypse, the surprise hit, and I'm very happy for Howard Porter, Jim Lee, and uh, Mark DiMatteis, and uh, that is uh, 50% off. It is $8.49. Volume 2 of The Sheriff of Babylon, Tom King and Mitch uh, Gerrits, 42% off, just $9.85. Catch up on The Sheriff of Babylon, one of the best books of uh, 2016. Check out Spider-Gwen, hardcover volume 1 from uh, Jason Latour and Robbie Rodriguez. It is 42% off, just $20.29. Some of the big deals happening now at InStockTrades.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for support, League of Word Balloon listeners. And uh, I hope today's conversation might uh, make some new subscribers to the Word Balloon podcast. Go to patreon.com slash wordballoon to do that. And uh, thank you. More episodes on the way for February. I had a little technical snafu at the end of uh, January, which kind of uh, uh, stifled uh, me after four episodes. But there were four really good episodes. And uh, trying to make up for it here in February with lots more great talk coming to you from Word Balloon. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2017.